Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. This week's episode will contain TFOS 1052 to 1065, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1052. Story number one. War! Now with recess. Written by Matt the M underscore. Humans are a race of warriors. Everyone knows that. That's why every self-respecting military hires them as mercenaries to fight their walls, all skirmishes and displays of power, as humans call them. No amount of violence seems to be great enough for humans to deem it a war. It is of no surprise to those who studied human history, at least the little bit. The sheer amount of industry that they used to commit their war efforts just a century or so prior to the discovery is mind-boggling. At first, you would think that the humans would refuse to fight each other, that they would start to feel some sort of camaraderie with one another when introduced to the universe full of civilizations. Opposite seems to be the case. They break themselves up into so many tribes and nations that it is quite simple to find a faction willing to engage with whoever your enemies hired. That leads to a paradoxical situation that most vicious fighting takes place in the sections where humans face each other. Injuries are common in these places. There are even occasional fatalities. I find it scary to think what it takes to kill a human, since I saw them survive large blazer burns or even a loss of a limb. On the other hand, they are far from savages. They have a strong code of honor. Ferocious as they are in a fight, they are equally gracious in victory, treating their prisoners better than most of their more civilized species. How uncivilized of me. I've been pouring my thoughts into a datapad without introducing myself to the reader. My name is... It is unpronounceable for humans, so they just call me Stephen. I am a strategic advisor to a human contingent facing another human contingent on a lump of dirt my superiors find important enough to fight for. Or at least pay someone to fight for it in their name. What is strategic advisor, I hear you ask. It's basically the regional manager of war. I tell human commanders which planet or moon should be conquered and how much they are going to get paid for it, and they tell me what equipment they need to do it. This conversation goes back and forth until we win or are forced to retreat. All the tactical decisions are left to the commanders. I get to travel a lot to check if their end of the contract has been fulfilled, and my travels made me somewhat versed in human culture. Nothing could prepare me for the surreal display I'm about to describe to you, though. The commander of our mercenaries informed me that there would be a pause in the fighting. For a period of time, the humans will not engage anyone and pull back their bases. I gathered it was some religious ritual that was taking place, and the humans were to honor it. Curious... I accepted the commander's offer to accompany him as he declares the ceasefire. We took an armored vehicle to the front line. This was one of the rare occasions I actually went to an active battlefield. As we crested a small hill I saw it in front of me, 
a wide, muddy plain dotted with ruined foliage. Continuous lines of trenches, foxholes, and small forts spanning from horizon to horizon. Sporadic mortar fire was being exchanged, and I could even see the flashes of laser fire. The commander ordered the driver to move out of the protective underbush farther into the open meadow. I was gripped by a sudden sense of panic. We were in clear vision of the enemy. If they knew what valuable personnel stood in this car, we would sure to become their main target. I was hoping the camouflage would be able to hide our presence, hoping until the commander activated a hollow projector. Usually used to project active camouflage, but adjusted to project an image into the sky. I looked up painfully aware that anyone on the battlefield knows our location. The image was of some religious ritual. A group of human females clad in long white dresses and flowers in their hair stood around a silver object. A white flag with an image of a colorful chain flew above their heads. One of them holding a stick ceremonially bowed and brought the stick to the silver item. As the view zoomed in on the action, I realized that the silver item was a concave mirror and that the stick is a torch that they were to light using their sun. I almost jumped out of my skin when a loud cheer rumbled over the battlefield as the torch was set aflame. The woman straightened and a man holding a similar unlit torch stepped to her. She lit his torch to more cheering coming from the trenches and he started running. The view cut to another torch wielder waiting. The first runner arrived. The fire was relayed in a similar fashion, and the second took off. This ritual was repeated over and over. There was always a runner waiting. His torch was lit, and he continued this never-ending journey. Each time, the humans now slowly filing out of the trenches cheered. Each time, the scenery was stranger and stranger. Some of the relays were obviously in space, the fire forming a mesmerizing sphere of patterns in no gravity environment. Some were underwater. How did humans make fire burn underwater was beyond me. Places were changing, planets were changing, the size and color of the runners were changing, but the theme of the relaying fire remained. It was as if the entire humanity united in this common goal of transferring the fire to every crevice of the universe. Eventually, the spectacle ended. Commander and I returned to the base, overtaking marching units, singing songs. The mood was euphoric, to say the least. In the following days, I made sure to visit the human barracks and learn more about the strange event. They were happy to show me everything about it. They call it the Olympic Games, and it is a universe-spanning sports event their entire species takes part in. An entire species of battle-hardened warriors lays down their arms to see the best at running and jumping, and heavens, are they good at it. I've watched people throw things farther than I could run, and run farther than I could imagine. Swim like they were born in water, and jump like they should never land. And then, three weeks later, I watched with them as the fire in a large cauldron was snuffed out. The event ended. As they were returning to the ordinary duties, I realized something. 
This war of ours, all of them in fact, with its grappling, struggling, laser burns, concussion grenades, and even the occasional unlucky fatality, must just be another sport for them. End of story. Story number two. Log written by a glass of whiskey. Great news! Today we found an almost perfect planet. With just some minor terraforming, this world will be pristine. A perfect place for his eminent holiday getaway. Update. Uh, some minor species seems to live on it. Uh, as per protocol, we have offered a relocation of a large number. Perfectively viable for repopulating to another system. Uh, they did not see, as us, that this was a fine and proper. Also, discussion about precisely how they would survive after the relocation came to a halt after the answer of, uh, you'll figure it out, did not go over well. It is a wonder that they've come this far. No tact. Very well, they seem to be a wholesale rejected this excellent approach. So, as per protocol, we will proceed to plan B. Asteroid bombardment, a simple and elegant solution, no waste of ammunition, and total destruction of primitive species. Unfortunately, this will cause a minor setback to the timeline for terraforming the planet. Update. Uh, minor setback. Request reinforcements from backup fleet. Uh, we need a precision bombardment to neutralize previously presumed destroyed uh, military installations. Species had prepared for some decades to a nuclear strike which enabled them to survive the immediate impacts. They had also um, prepared for retaliatory means on several thousand nukes, surely a sign of a deranged paranoia. Yeah. When the fleet entered the close orbit and began to terraforming process, these previously unknown nukes were launched, overwhelming a number, and at the close range the defensive maneuvers were not successful. The fleet was almost completely destroyed, save for a few support ships. The terraforming is delayed until backup arrives. However, it should be completed within an acceptable time frame, presuming the backup fleet can be provided. Update. Backup fleet has arrived when precision bombardment has been successful. Several full scans of the planet, as well as the limited landing parties, have been able to confirm no further military assets on land or sea. As an extra safety precaution, we have also poisoned the air. Anything not completely isolated have by now been destroyed. Request permission to move into the backup fleet to begin the terraforming process. There can be no further threat after this. Who in the feck builds ships that can stay hundreds of meters underwater for months? Filled to the brim with nuclear rockets. Automatic control engaged. As per protocol, the remnants of the fleet will retreat and this project is aborted until further notice. Estimations for new fleet incursion in 1,000 years. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1053. Story number one. What do you mean the humans pilot their own ships? Written by Devil Doc. Ah, science officer Kren... I was just on my way to see you. Lieutenant Kren looked up from his data slate as he heard the ship's chief engineer approach. Kren got up from all fours and sat back on his haunches in parade rest and greeted the commander. At ease, Lieutenant, Commander Sedar said, sitting back on his haunches and rolling his forward joints with exhaustion. 
I've read your preliminary report on the human fighter craft we recovered from the battle over Antares Spore. I have a few questions, if you don't mind. Helskarvanda, I thought you might have some questions. I suppose you want to know about the human remains we recovered? Kren replied, relaxing his torso, allowing his forepaws to rest between his backpaws. His tail curled around his legs in a relaxed sigh of respect. Indeed, Lieutenant, what were humans doing amongst the wreckage? Seda asked, mimicking Kren's posture. Well, uh, it seems the humans weren't just amongst the wreckage, Commander. They were the wreckage, said Kren, leaning forward a bit as he spoke. Seda blinked at him. You're going to have to explain that one. How did we recover human remains? I didn't see reports of escaped craft in the wreckage. No, Commander. The human remains were found in the fighters. Kren pulled his large, pointed ears back conspiratorially. The humans were piloting them. The humans were... Well, how? Seda stammered. Actually, then that. The report said two humans recovered. How many ships? Seven, Kren replied. Two of which contained humans. Kren leaned back and relaxed. Two human pilots. I don't understand. Seda sat back on his haunches and pulled his data slate from his pocket. I saw the initial specifications of the craft. They were too small for a bridge, let alone a bridge crew. Commander Seda began to consult his data slate, trying to remember the relative size of a human. The whiskers on his short snout twitched from side to side. Sir, the bridges of the fighter craft were the size but only for a single human. I believe the pilot was the bridge crew, captain, tactical officer, engineering, and helmsman. It flies the craft by itself. Seda looked up sharply, his pupils expanding in shock. But why? If their math and science is so advanced enough to calculate trajectories through warp gates, then surely they can build an AI to handle the ship-to-ship -ship combat like every other civilized species. Oh, they have an AI-piloted ship, sir, Kren replied. Five of the ships we recovered with no accommodations made for human pilots. The feeds recovered from the battles show the human piloted ship's variants were accompanied by a squad of AI fighters each. None of this made any sense to Seda. Humans are known for their effectiveness at war and for jealously protecting their territory and people. Since the humans had never lost a battle, their combat technology is largely uncategorized. No, much can be deduced from their defense against the cannon. Much is still unknown about the society since this so recently discovered FTL. But the way that they reacted when the cannon bombarded their worlds from orbit. If they have the technology, why risk their people in direct combat in this way? Seder asked. I was wondering the same thing myself, Commander. I did a little digging, but haven't found much yet. Though it turns out the human bodies have been discovered in the aftermath of the ground assault forces, too. They fight personally, in terrestrial battles, in person. Seder was shocked, and the fur standing up on his long tail and spine betrayed that. Yes, sir, their marines we classified as synthetic life forms were actually humans clad in armor. Clad in armor. I would say how quaint, but having studied their prowess in battle, yes, sir, their efficacy make more sense with this context. Seda pulled the cleansing cloth from his pocket and placed it in the back of his paw. He used this to flatten his fur and clean his whiskers. 
It's a bit barbaric though, isn't it? Forcing your soldiers to perform or die on the line of duty. Seda shuddered, thinking about how he would respond to direct ship-to-ship combat, or what he'd do if one of his comrades were killed in battle. I'm not sure if the fear of motivator completely explains their skill in battle, Gren replied, inspired to clean his own fur. However, I'm sure it doesn't hurt. It would certainly explain their creativeness and aggressiveness in battle space. No AI system could perform as well as a sentient being in direct control without subspace lag. Seda thought about this for a moment. It would also explain why no one's intercepted subspace battle commands before an attack, he said finally. On that note, sir, we have finished the reverse engineering the ship's communication systems. Let me guess, no subspace, so tight beam IR. Seda said as he got up and padded slowly over to the viewing port on the wreck bay. Exactly, sir, Kern replied as he followed Seda over to the port, looking through the transparent metal and the stars beyond. I mean, it is a far cry less advanced than quantumly entangled subspace missives, but if they are careful about leakage, then I suppose it's effective for short-range communications. I'm looking forward to the rare wait. Humans can only withstand what? 100 Gs of acceleration. Those fighters were easily doing four or five times that. Kren looked up from the rest platforms and hammocks above the agility course, across the ambush simulators, and over to a nail pruning stations in the rec room. They were alone. Humans should only be able to handle up to about 20 Gs before death is expected, sir. And yes, they were performing four to five hundred G maneuvers during combat. Pren leaned in conspiratorially again. The humans we found, however, well, we've never seen anything like it. How so? Seda asked intently. Well, sir, they were both integrated into their ships in a strange way. They are still dissecting their bodies, but, well, it's more like excavation than dissection at this point. Seda stared blankly at Kren. Kren continued. Sir, the humans we recovered were encased in a hard substrate. This substrate permeates their body to an absurd degree. Each cell of their body is completely solid. And if they were saturated with complex polymers that had suddenly hardened. Seda shifted his four paws uncomfortably. There are connectors and parts alongside the exteriors of their bodies that connect to the internal organs including the central nervous system and brainstem. I believe the humans used their pots to inject a stabilizer into their bodies to support their hollow spaces from the G-forces the pilots must experience and interface with their fighter craft directly through the electrical impulses of their brain. That... that's barbaric. Seda couldn't believe what he was hearing. The humans were willing to mutilate themselves. For what? To save a few milliseconds on communication lag. The humans. The human physiology isn't that different from ours, Seda said. They have internal organs to distribute vital elements and molecules to biotic processes. I know for a fact that they can't survive without their. their, uh. whatever you call their lungs. Correct, sir. But they appear to offload these functions to the ship's life support systems while they are piloting. I. just. Don't. Sailor's data chirped with a message for him. It was time for his meeting with his department heads. Sir, I'm expecting to finish up the report by the next cycle. 
Do you want to meet for a lap to discuss it further? Crane asked. Sure, Lieutenant. Though, I might have to get started on that drink early. Cedar purred in reply. End of story. Story number two. Paying the Human Price. Written by Echoing Cascade. Grand Inquisitor Sorium was at his wit's end. A fleet Australia had been holding the blockade around all subspace trading routes leading to his people's cradle world for an invented slight to their emperor. Even though his people were mighty warriors, he simply didn't have the numbers to break the siege and his people were starting to run out of food. No rights yet, but it was only a matter of time. He had no choice but to ask for help, and only one race had the ships and would be willing to help them against the Strali. The humans. Well, the price would be high. The thought was horrible. He knew what humans did to his people, how they enjoyed their company, but he had no choice. It was either some of his people's dignity or all of their lives. He made the call to General Armstrong. Sorry, I will cut to the chase as you humans say. There is no love lost between the humans and the Strally. They are slowly starving us with their blockade. What will it take for your people to help us? General Armstrong smiled. Oh, you know what we want. The question is, how many are you ready to lend us? And... For how long? Sorium was furious, but he knew what future his people was at stake. Five hundred volunteers had already come forward, but he'd be damned if he sent more than a strict minimum to these hairless apes. Sorry, one hundred and fifty for a week. Armstrong, you can do better than that, I'm sure. Sorry, one hundred and seventy-five for eight days. General Armstrong raised an inquisitive eyebrow. Grand Inquisitor Sorium sighed. Sorium. Very well. Two hundred for twelve days, but not a soul more. Armstrong agreed. The fourth and fifth fleet will begin their assault within the hour. The human general nodded to an unseen person. Grand Inquisitor Sorium turned off his monitor. Now, he had to pick 200 brave men and women to be the playthings of humans. Pauline, General Armstrong's secretary, had been seated at the meeting and, at the nod from the general, sent the attack orders to the 4th and 5th fleet. They had been ready and itching to attack for a week now. Pauline was going to leave before she turned around and looked straight at the general. Sir... Don't you think it's a bit unfair to make the demands of the desperate people? Armstrong. So, um, you're not going to partake? Pauline blushed. Well, um, it still feels wrong, though. General Armstrong picked up a picture from his desk and looked at it closely. It was himself in his ceremonial uniform, and on his lap, with the look of murderous rage, was Grand Inquisitor Sorium. What can only be described as a two-feet-tall chipmunk wearing medieval armor, sporting a long sword at his hip, arms crossed in indignation. Pauline, it's just a petting zoo. I get they fancy themselves fierce warriors, but come on, they're just so bloody cute. End 
of story. Tales from Outer Space 1054 Story number one. Humans and Starship Fuel, written by Eddie Eddie. Starships use all kinds of fuel. Nuclear reactors, solar engines, some even use exotic fuel to propel themselves far beyond the speed of light. These ships are amongst the fastest in the galaxy. The only issue was the exotic matter engines were massive and could only be housed in the biggest and most robust ships. This was until the humans came around and showed us their starship drives. The neutron drive. This engine was small, compact, and as fast as any of the exotic matter drives. The entire galaxy was shocked. How could such an engine exist? Why had no one encountered this fuel before? The humans even mentioned that any star system would be capable of producing the fuel. They even offered to show us the mining process for such fuel. When we agreed, we assumed that the process would be something that, while complex, did not require any unique resources, thus could be established even in the most depleted star systems. How wrong we were. At route to the systems, the humans explained that the fuel is actually mined and doesn't require a lot of refining. However, due to the intense magnetic fields induced by the fuel, it was impossible to use drones to acquire the fuel. This means that they actually had to use other humans to fly ships that mined the fuel. As the explanations continued, we grew ever more confused. There was very little that every star system that produced large enough amounts of magnetic radiation capable of throwing off electromagnetic systems or remote control devices. When asked why they didn't use physical tethers, they explained that most substances were too fragile to withstand the nature of the mining area and only specialized forged metals would even have a chance of surviving. Even then, they'd not last longer than a few dozen mining trips. So even the most respected mining ships needed their shielding replaced every dozen trips to ensure that there was no risk to those who were piloting such vessels. When we entered the system, we expected to see some kind of massive hauler or some kind of planet engine that would be mining the resources from asteroids and planets. How wrong we were. About the system star was a titanic ring of metal. We were confused. Why would one build a fuel refinery around a star? Surely taking such an action was just encouraging trouble. The slightest stellar flare could touch off even the most stable of fuels and destroy the entire thing. We were reassured no matter what you did to the fuel it was highly stable unless one directly stimulated it as it was done in their engines. As we approached, we did not see any ships beyond a single long-distance fuel tanker about the system. Our confusion rose. Where were the mining ships that we were told existed in the thousands of these systems? Finally, as we got close enough to the immense metal ring to make out some details, we spotted tiny black dots falling away from the star and even some returning from it. Upon pointing these out to the humans, they just nodded and told us that those were the mining vessels. They were mining from a star, sending their own people into the blazing inferno that was over 9,000 degrees. Just what kind of fuel could require such an insane mining operation? Upon landing on the station, we were full of questions. Just who would dare take on such an insane task? Why would they do such a thing, and for what reason would humanity even consider this? Slowly, the answers came to our knowledge, as we were shown around and told how things worked. 
as if this were a perfectly normal diplomatic visitation. Not some kind of insane, suicidal mining operation that threw their own people into the star. The people who took up the task of mining the star's core. Yes, the core. They didn't just skim the surface as some of us had postulated, but they dove into the very core of a ball of nuclear fury that was their mining project. These insane people were volunteers and got paid for the job. They saw it as some kind of mighty duty, since all of humanity relied upon them. Some of them even proudly said that their fathers had done it before them, and their father's father. These star miners were tanned and well-built and all seemed to have unusual temperaments, as if nothing could face them. Then again, after diving again and again into a stellar core, they probably had seen things no other living being could describe. All of the envoys of the council were thrown into disarray to see such a suicidal act treated as an honor. Humanity must be insane, or some kind of hyper-militaristic species. Yet again, we could not be more wrong. The humans even offered to share the mining process with us. But what would we do with it? Who amongst even the bravest would be willing to dive into the heart of a star? A few more days were spent aboard the refinery ring, and we learned a little about how the humans processed such fuel and how they discovered it, all of which was tinged with what we assumed was an innate madness that humanity had about it. Nothing they did seemed sane, and everything was so fraught with risk that any sane species would run screaming at just the idea. We were even given a small cases containing samples of the fuel to investigate and experiment on. Upon our departure, we were suddenly reminded what the fuel was used for. Every human ship that went beyond the speed of light had chunks of a heart of the star within the engine, and they were fueled by the harnessed stellar fury. A truly insane race. But a brilliant one, nonetheless. To harness the heart of a star and dare to mine such a substance for no reason other than it made things go fast. Humanity was a unique species, and it was yet to be seen if they had more secrets to share that would shake us all to the core. End of story. Story number two. Modern Armor, written by Warp Mind. Jolk smirked as he saw the death welder that he'd managed to get for his first to read about, decent shape for its species, and given access to a fabricator to make their own weapons and armor for the event. As always, the fabricator had the schematics for all of the latest powered armors and high-powered weapons. And to keep things <laughs> fair, the fabricator also included a little footnote about disabling all circuitry once the duel started. Chokes had kept winning for two years thanks to that little detail. All perfectly legal, of course. Not his fault his opponents never noticed the footnote, and made themselves the heaviest robotics they could, and then had to scramble out and face him in simple combat. Jerry whistled as he made the adjustments to the fabricator, making sure that his armor was perfect. He sort of wished he knew mythology better, but at least the fabricator device was pretty intuitive, and a built-in AI was good at figuring out the precise alloys that he needed from description. He wasn't completely thrilled about being abducted for a gladiatorial fight, 
and heavens knew what sort of monster he was up against, but he was certainly planning on making the best attempt that he could. The day of the battle had come, and Chulk strode into the arena, seeing the death wilder wait there, clad in metal from head to toe. They even carried a huge, portable barrier of some sort, along with several weapons dangling at the waist. Chulk's smirked. The poor Deathwilder would be so incredibly hampered with the EMP disabled his armor, it would be almost embarrassing. He nodded to the referee, who reached down and pressed the button, shutting down any powered gear and signaling the start of the bout. Jerry nodded to the large axe-wielding alien that entered the arena, and calmly hefted his mace, feeding the weight in his hand and finding the right grip. The armor was ever so slightly heavier than expected, but if the AR was right, it was five times as tough as anything that he'd ever be able to get back home. Increasing the weight by a fifth was, well, it would be worth it, so long as the fight didn't draw out too long. His hands stood on end for a moment as the claxton bared, and then the alien charged. Chalks roared and sprinted towards the Deathwald. The poor guy was wearing almost half his weight in armor, and now the motors were disabled. He'd be lucky to stumble behind that. Tell me how the sand tastes. Chalks was confused and in pain. He never had a time to fully register what had happened. It seemed like a wall jumped him, and then he was flat on the ground. He shook his head and stumbled to his feet and the audience was deathly quiet. This had never happened. It had to be a fluke. He turned to the human and charged again. Jerry looked at the charging alien, easily defected by the incoming strike with his shield and swinging his mace at the alien's torso, seeing the armor buckle and hearing what could only be ribs shattering. What the hell was going on? This uh, arena champion was fighting like some sort of poorly trained fantasy orc or something. Like he was used to fighting target dummies. The alien charged one last time, and Jerry swung the mace low, hooking the alien's leg and catching him in the center of his chest on the backswing. The alien coughed up some purplish blood and lay still after that. His left leg flopped out at a really painful-looking angle. Chalks slowly opened his eyes, glancing around carefully to see himself in the infirmary bed, with a plaster cast around his torso and one leg. The Deathwalder sitting nearby with the database. Here to, um, to gloat, Deathwalder. How did you keep your armor working after the EMP was fired? Your power cells should have been fried. Jerry looked up from the database. Oh, you're awake. I'd hoped you'd come around before I was sent home. Wait, EMP? Chalks glared. Everyone makes some sort of powered suit when they find the plans for them in the fabricator. Everyone! And the arena equalizer, the EMP generator, disables all power cores and circuitry and battle starts. How did you get past that? Jerry frowned and then began to chuckle. <laughs> oh, no, I just put together an armor that I'm familiar with. You have some great materials. 30 kilograms is a little heavier than normal, but uh, only by fifth. And a good full-plate harness is so well distributed, you don't even really notice it for a little while. Chalks blinked. Unpowered armor? 
You, you used unpowered armor, even on a death world? Jerry shrugged. Well, yeah. You don't really have a decent power armor yet, despite what Hollywood might think. And besides, even if we did, SCA rules wouldn't allow it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1055. Story number one. Death Wilders are medically absurd. Written by Random3x. Dr. Clickspittle was looking over the charts for a few patients in his small clinic. It was anything but the usual today. Chick was in because an idiot consumed 10% ethanol when they ate a slightly rotten fruit by mistake. Choke was in because the gas bag's curiosity had gotten the better of him. And he came into contact with an electric wire running at a lethal 3 volts. Is a miracle that he's still alive. Finally, Propsis was in after eating what he thought was a berry, but was a plant that contained a deadly toxin known as capsaicin. He was going to have his work cut out for him today. Starting with Choke, he did a physiological scan to check for any heart damage done by the voltage. He thanked the stars and the moon when the scan came back negative. He prescribed some basic cellular regenerative pills and advised Choke to get some proper bed rest and avoid touching anything with electricity in the future. Next, he moved on to Shuck. Again, he began with a physiological scan. He was checking to see if there was any damage to the liver and kidneys. To his worry, he found the liver was severely damaged due to the alcohol poisoning. He injected that antitoxin to negate the alcohol flowing through his system with the best speed that he could muster. He only hoped, and it wasn't too late. He was looking at Chuck himself. He seemed to be drifting in and out of consciousness. His speech was heavily slurred, and he had no sense of balance. Listing the symptoms into the diagnostic device came back with an 87% likelihood of a stroke. He was internally breaking down, as to treat the stroke, he'd need blood thinners, but these thinners would only worsen the alcohol's effect. Deciding to focus on the toxin first, he left the antitoxin to do its work, praying that the damage caused by the stroke wouldn't be irreparable. Finally, he came to Propsis. The poor boy was screaming in agony. There was sadly little he could do other than provide painkillers and hope that he survives. Those damn foresters were meant to clear the forest of jalapenos, and yet their laziness has left this kid crying and in abject terror and pain. He would certainly write a letter to the governor to ensure that nothing like this would ever happen again. Sitting down at his desk, he sipped at a cool glass of water. Then, when one of the visiting human traders was dragged in by one of his friends, the friend seemed to be in a panic. Doc! Doc! Please, Doc! Help him! He begged. Gesturing to the free bed, he readied his scan unit, walking up to the human. He seemed heavily wheezing. Using a physiological scanner, he took a reading. The results, though, um, confused him. Apologies, it appears my scanning unit is malfunctioning. One moment and I'll retrieve my backup device, he reassured the other human. Please, hurry, it's been too long already, the human's friend begged. 
Hurrying with all due haste, he retrieved the other scanner unit and scanned the wheezing human. This can't be possible, he muttered to himself. Human, tell me what led to this condition, he demanded. Huh? The human seemed confused. Typical for a lower race, the doctor thought. I need to know for the accurate diagnosis, he demanded. We were doing some work on our ship's electrical system, he began. Ah, that'll explain it. His body is suffering from electrical shock. That's why his readings are all over the place. Okay, tell me the voltage, he asked. Um, uh, well, uh, roughly 30,000, the human replied, confused again. It took a moment for the doctor to realize what had just been said. 30,000, not 30 millivolts, he shouted in disbelief. Yes, 30 kilovolts, the human confirmed, seemingly even more confused. Impossible, how is anyone alive after such voltage? The doctor asked aloud. He quickly reran the scan and found the wheezing human's heart was undamaged. Well, he wasn't electrocuted, the human said. Okay, that explains how he's still alive. What happened next? He demanded, hoping for a straight answer. Well, we finished for the day, so we grabbed a drink and a meal, the human answered. What did he consume? The doctor asked, thinking that this could be an allergic reaction. Well, um, he had a beer and a curry answered. What are the components of these items? Hoping for a clear answer from the human. Well, the beer is an alcoholic beverage, and curry is a spicy meal? The human answered. The doctor couldn't believe his ears. The human must have been insane to willingly poison themselves by drinking alcohol and consuming capsaicin. Rerunning his scans once more, he found the liver and kidney function were nominal. Listen, I don't know why you're asking me these stupid questions. We just need a refill for his inhaler. The human snapped at the doctor. He took all of the doctor's willpower to avoid fainting when the human explained what they needed to treat the patient. This lunatic race used steroids to stop the inflammation of a disease called asthma. Only after switching off the safety system on his synthesizer could he produce the quantity needed. With relief, the human utilized the device on the wheezing human and the wheezing human began to breathe normally. Now that that's sorted, why all the dumb questions, Doc? The human asked with a look of annoyance. Well, um, everything you've listed so far was incredibly deadly to my people. How is your race still alive? The doctor asked with a genuine curiosity. Ah, well, our livers constantly repair themselves so we can drink alcohol freely. Though too much can cause issues. When it comes to spicy stuff, we get the side effects, but enjoy the sensation when it's going in, he explained. A race that enjoyed intense burning agony. These humans were barbaric and insane. What about the electricity? Surely that is lethal to you, the doctor asked. Oh yeah, but, but it's about the amperage, not the voltage. That'll kill us. My buddy Mike accidentally got shocked with several hundred thousand volts, and as he wasn't grounded, he came out with only burns on his hand, the human explained. This was the last thing the doctor remembered before he fainted. End of story. Story number two. Guidelines for dealing with Terran troops. Written by Kaiser 5243. The following are guidelines released by the Galactic Military Exchange Program for dealing with Terran military troops. They are for your protection. Number one, 
The officers are there for your protection and the protection of the opposition. All human soldiers are trained to lead no matter the rank and can adjust their command structure in an instant if the commanding officer is killed or injured. However, humans take the death of their superiors as a direct insult, resulting in a dramatic escalation in violence. If you find yourself with a squad that has been separated from the main body, it is in your best interest to follow all instructions regardless of the rank of the human giving them and stay out of their way. Number two, if left unattended in any location covered in gravel for an extended periods, they will begin to throw rocks. This is normal behavior and should not raise concerns at first. Normally, they are content with circling a helmet or other containers and attempt to fill it with rocks from a distance. You are encouraged to participate if your anatomy allows, as this is a bonding ritual of sorts and will assist in integration with your unit. If they begin throwing rocks at each other, calmly retreat to a safe distance. Number 3. Human soldiers have the ability to sleep anywhere and often use this ability to hide during a busy work. Always look under vehicles or in shipping containers before moving them for sleeping humans. If you find a group of sleeping humans, it is generally okay to wake them gently or from a distance as long as you have a good reason. Unnecessary waking of these sleeping humans can result in aggression. Number 4. Nicknames are common and often given as terms of endearment. If you are labeled with a nickname you find undesirable, do not make it known or you have guaranteed that it will become permanent. The exception being names that are culturally offensive. If this happens, kindly inform them of the error of the appropriate apologies will be made. Number 5. Do not offend the supply officer. Number 6. Human soldiers will often hold boasting competitions, which will often include, but are not limited to, mating, violent altercations, excessive inebriation, drug use, previous military engagements, military training, basic training. Footnote. Most humans will share basic training or boot camp stories when first meeting, regardless of rank, as a way of establishing common ground. Number 7. All human soldiers are masters of profanity and are often able to communicate effectively using only profanity. Basic knowledge of the human profanity is recommended, but the definitions of the individual words are seldom important, and special attention should instead be focused on the tone and delivery. If you find yourself uncertain, watch the reactions of the other humans around you. Number 8. If they are running from something, follow without question. An explanation will be given once the danger has passed. Number 9. If you are running towards something, follow with caution. Number 10. They are allowed to make fun of each other and often do. Once you are successfully integrated with your group of humans, they will include you in this behavior. Reciprocate at your own risk. Number 11. Outsiders are not under any circumstances allowed to pick on any individual. Doing so will often invoke the wrath of the group ending in violence. Number 12. Humans often collect impractical handheld weapons and display them in their living quarters. You are encouraged to also display historic weapons from your planet to display, as conversation over them is another way humans bond. 
Number 13. Humans' concept of honor during battle is solely based on victory. While they will fight to the death, they prefer not to if there is a better option that will lead to an overall victory at the detriment of their personal pride. This being said, they will willingly sacrifice themselves to save the lives of their fellows. Humans have been known to throw themselves on grenades or run through enemy fire or minefields to save the lives of their brothers. The sacrifice is to be held with the highest regard. Human heroes are historically not the victorious survivors, but the humans who have perished in pursuit of victory. Any disrespect towards those individuals will likely end in your termination. With these guidelines in place, we welcome the Terrans to the galactic stage and hope your time spent with them is enjoyable. Good luck. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1056 Story number one. When cornered, they fight. Written by G-Squad Online. Log from Hive Entry Rulkin of the UNSC SPS Arrow of Orion. Year 2474 ACE. Death Rulers. The subject of well over half of the Rulkin Hive Logs. I've said it before, and I'll say it yet again. What in Cryotha's soil that these hairless apes have to deal with that makes them stare death in the eyes and try to stab it. We get ahead of ourselves. I'm sure you're all familiar with our crew of 21, ourselves counting as one crewed unit. The other 20, consisting of 10 Death Wilders and one Slyke, one Thrag, a mated pair of Aerials, and six species I've yet to identify. General life support repair is hard enough as it is. Now try to keep it running while the ship is being shot at. We did a fairly decent job, and with only two hiccups and no casualties, things definitely could have been worse. The same, however, could not be said about our engine repair. Individualist species are surprisingly fragile in comparison to myself, however. Tripping and slamming headfirst into metal while the ship shakes violently is more than excusable. The enemy ship's bridge collapsed, but so did our engine. From there, the pirates were as good as dead. We had drifted for what one of the Death Wilders considered three rotations around their home planet, before the ship warned us that we were drifting in range of a planet's gravitational pull. Unable to do anything more useful than deploy atmospheric entry protocols, we knew damn well that we were having an unexpected vacation. I counted three of our crew members and five of my spawn dead on impact. Of them, none we cared about. A scouting party was considered, and our brood being the fastest and most expendable, were dispatched. The land was human, with air thick like mud. The creatures all had claws and jaws and twenty ways to put us on the walls, but what really stood out was just how bioluminescent these creatures were. Even the plants had some form of glowing bits, and the amount of plants seemed to almost mirror my home world. When questioned all around as to who could survive, the Death Wilders just walked out of the ship. No gear, no rebreathers, no anything. Even the brood didn't proceed that recklessly. The remaining crew geared up, with the exception of us, who gathered simple rebreathers and atmospheric monitors, and we joined them. Within moments, the Death Wilders began gathering supplies. 
They made crude tools that could barely serve more than use as a blunt weapon. They then used said crude tools to make other, sharper tools. To say that this was a strange sight was an understatement. Seeing a creature build tools out of anything other than a specialized design brood workers genetically designed to carry out the task. And they did it so fast, with no communication in their barking, loud tones like they usually do. As I lay down and prepared for construction of another hive, I was interrupted by one of them. Don't. Not out in the open area. Hive construction greatly increases chance of survival. Build a hive in a cave, or keep the hive in the ship. Building one here makes it hard to protect. Strange. They say these things like they've built hives. We did, as we were told, and chose to keep our hive in the ship. After some time had passed, the Death Worlders proceeded to make more tools. They used the trees to make dancing hot flower. They used extreme amounts of soils to make a giant thing they called a water filter, and used long bands of leaves to make traps. When I questioned the use of traps, the Death Worlders told me that it was a hidden tool to capture prey. Stunned silence followed. Diabolical. The night fell fast, but the Death Worlders continued their work. Noises in the night jumped and hissed and screamed. The other crew members were terrified, even when they had their tasks. But not the Death Worlders. They either didn't hear it or didn't care. They spread out and left the camp to begin hunting for food. The plants out here can be just as poisonous as the ones in our whole world, so we'll need meat. We can test the plants with my brood. We need all the hands we have right now. Just keep the fire going. We soon learned the dancing flower was what he meant. He told us the plants around here can keep it going if tossed in, but the leaves wouldn't work. Instead, we had to cut down the giant plants with the sharp tools that they had made. We had to ask the mated pair to cut them, as we couldn't use the tools properly. Things went well until halfway into the planet's night rotation. A large group of somewhat large, slender quadrupeds approached us. Our best efforts to intimidate them were met with swiping motions aimed by brood. It was here that one of the aerials grabbed one of the tools, a sharp piece of wood, and tried to stab one of the beasts. What followed next involved a feeling I did not even know that I could feel, as it made its attack. The beast was stabbed through what I was told is its shoulder, but it didn't go down. It instead bit into our poor crew member's throat and yanked down, tearing over a chunk of its flesh and feathers, along with something solid. The other A-roll let out a screech. It momentarily shocked the beasts, but they still didn't let up. They grabbed the dying member and tried to drag it off when one of them did something and shot up into the air. The Death Wolders started to appear in view. One by one, the Death Wolders came out from the woods and trapped the beasts in between us and the Death Wolders. The beasts pulled into a defensive stance and waited. They didn't wait long as the Death Wolders charged to meet the biting jaws. I sent the brood in to bite and sting. The Death Wolders didn't use the tools meant for these creatures for some reason. They used the blunt weapon things from before. When they hit one of the beasts, you could hear the sound of something in them breaking. This, unlike the sharp stick, sent them on the ground. Those bastards didn't stand a chance. I always wondered how they survived in the homeworld. 
They didn't have claws, or fangs, or spikes, or thick skin. I don't wonder anymore. End of story. Story number two. When down, they survive. Written by G Squad Online. Log from Thrag, Entry N of the UNSC SPS Arrow of Orion. Year 2474 ACE. The humans scare me. Do you know how embarrassing that sounds? It has been three planet rotations since the crash landing that killed Moore stranded our crew of 19. Our ship is tattered to the point where the only thing that it can really do is serve as a home base. Rulkin has set up farther defenses by sealing breaches with wax, paper, and surrounding items. On top of the layering of the ship in random items around our area to make it look natural. That still doesn't make it stick out any less. The humans been behaving so much more different than when ship was intact. It was like switch flipped in their heads and they went from bumbling techies to full-blown predators. In three days, they killed a group of what they called growing wolves, identified and started forming non-toxic plants and coated the weapons that they'd made with the toxic ones. They set up traps in the forest near us and built a fire. A fire in full access to me. Oh, they bad. I began to speak, for this cannot stand. No fire, no fire, no fire. Yun, you may have a no problem with being warm, but everyone else here gets cold at night. Plus, food can kill us if we don't cook it. Then use fur, keep it warm. Last I checked, you can't cook food with your dense fur. How easy raw food kill you? The human started to speak, but the crying beaked one spoke out. This is a stray planet we have never interacted with, so it is almost guaranteed lethal to everyone. The fire stays, but the fire stays. The Hubans slowly turned our surroundings into a safe area for us. This ship was running with near-infinite battery, according to everyone, since the engines are down for the count. The beaked one mourned its mate's death during this time, and the humans buried it in the middle of the crops that they were growing. As the fifth planet rotation came to a close, Rulkin began to talk to one of the humans while I was holding two enormous plants together for them to be put in ground and tie. Nathwelder, what is your name? Darren. You seem to be the queen, is that correct? I'm a male, so uh, no. Most of us are working independently. We do not understand. What do you mean, independently? Picture each of us as a queen of your species. That's how our minds operate. So you are alone? Yes. Rilken shuddered for a second, visibly disturbed by the sudden realization that everything the humans had been doing have been the work of people that can't understand each other's thoughts. But you work so well together. How? We, as a species, have a tendency to work together to get something done. Because of this, talking to others is something that we skilled at by default. I wanted to answer a question that had been bugging me for a while. How you know to do all this, balls, color change, and tiny toy things, the fire? Darren shifted in his seat, leaning more into the chat. Other crew members joined in. We, as a species, uh, are really good at sharing knowledge. 
We have people that have an entire job around sharing the information they know. I learned how to make a fire at the young age of five, and not a day later I knew exactly how to keep a fire properly fed for days on end. Logs for the under, sticks for the over, and twigs for the middle. The Huber grabbed a handful of sticks and arranged them over the fire. Almost to demonstrate the point, while fascinated, eyes watched. Even I couldn't help but watch, despite knowing that I could never go near it. Every human is trained in basic survival. The bare bones minimum a human needs to survive is atmosphere, temperatures between 0 and 50 degrees Celsius without heavy clothing, roughly 20% oxygen content in the air, water, and non-toxic food. We are sorry. We don't think we caught those pheromones right. Did you say that you could survive from uh, freezing to halfway boiling? Yep. Multiple creatures gave reactions of astonishment, myself included. Darren cleared his throat, trying to talk more. As I was saying, we were taught how to mend a broken bone or a cut. We were taught how to turn a stick into a spear, how to make a club, a hammer, a knife, a fire, a pickaxe, an axe, a farm, multiple traps, and a furnace by ourselves. Why? Many things in this cruel universe can cause someone to be stranded. Even in a city, one can be forced to rely upon themselves. And, bad to us, these things can make or break us. If we had not remembered even half of this, we would be dead. Survival should be a priority, always. The humans scare me. I should be dead already, and yet these hairless midgets have not only given us room to survive, but to thrive. With nothing more than mere sticks and stones... How these creatures are such bumbling morons on a spaceship is no longer chalked up to, they're just stupid anymore. They know how to survive in the bowels of hell itself, and we set them on a spaceship to have them bark orders at us. I had always wondered why they were in charge, and why it was so important to have at least one on the ship. Now I understand. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1057 Story number one. A guide to safely enjoy planet Earth. Written by Original Rich Game. Humans are absolutely crazy. Hello readers of the Galaxy Monthly, and welcome to this week's installment of the hardest locations to travel to. And this week, we really have a scorcher. As we all know, the eyes of our entire galaxy have been sent towards the large, out-of-the-way planet Earth. The tool seeking destination hotspot. Earth is a class 6 death world, but don't let the high gravity get you down. Humans have some of the nicest hospitality around to cater to your every wish. So follow these steps and have a delightful stay at one of the many, many resorts on planet Earth. Number 1. Don't leave the resort unless you're planning on going on guided tours. We suggest you don't leave the hotel for some of the Earth's areas have dangerous wildlife. Note, do not touch anything brightly colored, especially small frogs. Intern Stellar is currently in critical condition. Number two, do not partake in the human radiation sessions. This is most commonly called sunbathing, uh, but humans like to radiate themselves for long periods of time after using their radiation blocker, sun cream. This is usually done to darken or tan the human skin. Note, uh, 
We have created a sun cream and factor 450 that is safe for most species to partake in sunbathing for one hour. Do not stay out longer than one hour or you will have radiation burns. We wish Stellar a swift recovery. Number three, do not eat human food. Humans have a strong immune system and even a stronger gut, so they eat pretty much everything. They are omnivores, so no reason to worry about what foods will be served. We would advise going to what is called a Xenobar or ordering off the Xeno menu at places with them. Note, human drinks are dangerous too. They use a grape species for wine with high alcohol content. We wish in turn Stellar a quick and harmless replacement of his digestive system. Number four, do not use power shower. It is insanely hot and can rip off your skin. Note, uh, do not put it on low setting. It works the same. We hope Stellar will have a harmless skin graft on his neck and upper back alongside the rest of his irradiated skin. Number five, do not have relations with humans. Stellar could not help himself, and now it'll be a miracle if he has children. Again. Six. Do not attend a foam party on the beach. Not only will the foam kick up the sand, but the disinfectants can kill off all useful bacteria on the skin and that kill microbes. Note that this also happens if you swallow it. Needless to say, Stellar has not been affected by this, because he needs a new stomach from the alcohol and grape poisoning. Number seven. Don't get in a fight with a human. Note, Mexican wrestling may result in loss of limb. A fundraiser for a new one can be found at the bottom for Stellar. Number 8. Don't gamble with humans. It seems humans can read facial cues in an instant and hide theirs very well. Note, don't gamble in a game of poker or blackjack. Stellar is now in massive debt. Now that you have the don'ts, we will leave the do's up to you. Many popular destinations for our heat lovers are in our Africa package, where you can see many wonders of the ancient earth in Egypt with its pyramids. Lovers of humid environments will love our rainforest package, where there is plenty of torrential rain. Just don't leave the hotel. Risk takers with the environment will love our British Isles package. Not only has it got plenty of history, but there is also few dangerous animals and, for those environmental risk tankers, the weather is unpredictable, except for the fact that it is normally raining and cold. So why not go to Earth? The people are lovely, and as long as you follow our 8-step guide, you will have a lovely stay. Please note, the fundraiser for Stellar is in all of this month's editions. Disclaimer. Galactic Monthly Magazine is not responsible for death, damage to property or persons. Reviews. Still are. Deleted by order of the Galactic Government of Planets. Gorg. A lovely planet. Lovely planet. Just the shame about the gravity. Jerkoff. Had a great stay. Humans couldn't be nicer. But uh, something called a dog licked me and now I'm in hospital. Gortoth. End of story. Story number two. The Attempt on How to Safely Navigate Australia Written by Original Rich Game Australia Stellar thought to himself A loving hell He had been to Earth for a Galaxy Monthly magazine before But hadn't visited the massive island after the encounter with Quote Florida Man He understood that this man was arrested a week later For wrestling a fully grown crocodile in the middle of a swamp 
Vanal Stolar was in a whole new situation. He was having an argument with one most self-entitled woman that he had ever known. Later found out that this was Corrin when someone shouted it at her. She was saying something about how it was his fault that her son's ice cream had fallen on the floor because your presence is distracting him. He was about to shout, despite the cry child, after she demanded that he paid her money in compensation, approximately $15 for a 99-cent ice cream, when he saw that she was recording him. He politely said, Sorry, but I did nothing wrong. I am leaving now. But she followed him, shouting abuses and saying, This will go all over Twitter. He didn't know what Twitter was, but he assumed it was some sort of car and breeding ground or a car and boot camp. He managed to escape the woman eventually and took a drink from his oversized container. This was a very hot place. He was back at his hotel called the Outback Hotel, unimaginatively in the Outback. After a while, he saw a group of people crowding around and pointing and nearly shrieking. They were replaced by a group of young men who started nearly dancing around the spot. This seemed like some sort of human recreational activity, and he registered smiles. Mistake one. He walked over to them and saw a small armored creature. It had a large tail for its ball body size and two pincers. He bent down to look at it. It charged him, and the back tail jabbed at his hand. He retracted his hand, and the animal flew into the air. There was laughter around him, but the massive soul on Stellar's left hand was worrying. He decided the best thing to do was to go into his room. It was very large and much cooler in here, and his factor 450 sun cream would soon run out. He walked into the room and decided to go to the toilet. The new digestive system that he had been given after the severe reaction to wine was always, it seemed, in need to go to the toilet. He was cursing the fact that his left hand got stung as his right was robotic, after having been accidentally ripped off by a dwarf Mexican wrestler. When an extreme pain came from the toilet, he shut up and found a massive snake had coiled itself inside the toilet bowl and had bitten him when he sat down. I'll probably need a new arse now with my luck, he thought to himself. He got the snake off of him, but then it wrapped around his arm and bit down. Luckily, it was his metal arm, and it slithered away after breaking both of its teeth. He found that he couldn't sit down now, though, and he still has a week of Australia left for the magazine. Always put the intern to it, he thought grimly. After his last trip to Earth, he was given a 700% pay rise, and heard of everywhere, and he was going to throw a party to celebrate. That is until he realized that he was an unpaid intern and would still make nothing. This didn't help much considering the fact that he was seriously in debt to the Italian Mafia and had nearly gone into witness protection scheme. Night fell and it got colder. However, it was still rather hot. Apparently, the hotel had employed dancers from the place called Hawaii. The dancers had flames surrounding them and looked almost possessed, but the dancing was amazing. As he watched them in awe and he was given a necklace of sorts made of flowers and leaves, he saw most people with one of these didn't have a shirt on, so he removed his own. An hour later, he discovered how extremely allergic he was to flowers and had a rash creeping down his body. The next day was a trip back to the hospital to get treated for the snake and scorpion poisons, as well as an alarming rash. 
This was fairly rudimentary until he caught the common cold. His species had no common cold, however, so he felt very sick and fainted. After three days, he left and then returned to the two hours after being bitten by a spider bigger than his fist, which bit him on the head. It took some time to explain that his species didn't have two heads. He decided to leave the outback and go to the eastmost edge of the island. His logic was sound. More people live there, so fewer deadly things can happen. Right? Oh, silly Stellar, he would think later. After getting off the aircraft, he saw a creature near the forest. Deciding to get a closer look at what turned out to be a koala, he ventured into the forest. He thought it looked cute and cuddly after everything that he'd seen. He swiftly changed his mind, however, after it swiped at him and nearly removed his eye. Silly Stellar. To top it all off, he was lost in the Australian bush at a time when the Australian bush goes through its yearly tradition of burning down. He was found six weeks later by fire crews. Back home, he relaxed. He'd gotten off pretty easy, he thought. But then he found out that the medicine that he was given had, uh, let's uh, not go into that. Four years later, his impatient editor asked for his report for Australia for the issue. Being too frightened, a smarter person would go and file a lawsuit for basically everything that you could sue someone for. Stellar just said, just no, no. The magazine never issued a report on Australia. However, they did issue how to navigate Twitter. Needless to say, Twitter was furious. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1058. Story number one. Here there be monsters, written by Geistling. Dreden grabbed his sister Nira's hand, yanking her sharply down the tunnel. Without turning to her, he hissed. We have to keep running, Nira. The monster's coming. I can hear it. Nira clutched his hand with all of her might her child body could muster, and sniffled as she replied. I'm so tidy and hungry. We haven't had anything to eat in so long. I know, Nira. I know. I'm tired and hungry, too. But, but the monsters are going to catch up to us if we stop and rest. You know what Mesmo and Pazi said. If we see a monster, we have to run. It's the only way to survive, Dreden said. The two children moved in silence, still sprinting through the low, narrow tunnels that ran through his family's crippled ship, the Neza. They could hear the monsters behind them, crawling down the tunnels, its cybernetic armor scraping on the narrow tunnels, bellowing, screeching. Dreden didn't know how much longer they could keep going. Things on the Neza had gone from bad to worse, to apocalyptic. First, their dark drive had broken down just as they got into the Diomedes asteroid cluster. This had made mining impossible, but their parents had been sure that they could fix the dark drive. The two children were asleep when the dark drive melted down, its containment field failing and causing a massive eruption that tore through the ship. Their mesmer, Gobi, had made it back to them in a cloud of acrid smoke, smelling of burning insulation and melting metal. She had stayed just long enough to force them into the aft section of the ship, where she sealed them in. She had signed that she loved them through the viewport before the Atmo rushed out of the ruptured ship, carrying their last partner into the empty. Dree had managed to activate the distress beacons just like his posse had shown him, but he knew that it was likely 
pointless. The Diomedes weren't close to any interstellar shipping lanes, and the Alliance didn't help shipwrecks unless they had some kind of value. More importantly, monsters controlled the Diomedes. While he didn't know the details, Dreen knew that there was a war being waged between the Galactic Alliance and these monsters, and that the Alliance was losing. The monsters were winning against all odds, killing Alliance soldiers by the thousands. Dreen's family had hoped just to avoid the conflict, both the Alliance and the monsters. Dree's father had said the Alliance were just as bad as the monsters, if not worse. They just wanted to live in peace, and mining was what they did best, especially the Anna worms used in the pathway. Then, this morning, the monster had found them. They boarded the cripple ship while Dreden had taken nearer and ran. They'd been running for hours, the monsters behind them so massive that they filled the service tunnels from side to side, even crawling. The monsters roared and bellowed ceaselessly behind them. As they came around one of the corners ahead, Dree saw one of the monsters at the far end of the tunnel. The thing had massive armor plates seemingly screwed into its body, and its head was covered in a dark steel helmet. The face was pure blackness, with a grinning skull staring right back at him. The immense thing was terrifying. When it spied Treden and Nira, it roared at them and tried to rush down the tunnel at them. The tight quarters slowed it down, allowing the children to dart down an intersection just ahead. The monster roared behind them, its frenzied howls almost seeming like words. Dreden led his sister down the tunnel after tunnel, but the monsters seemed to be everywhere. Dree finally realized that they were being herded, and he knew where. The shuttleway was the only place large enough for the monsters to gather, to use their mammoth strength and size. Wait, wait, Nira. I, I need to think. The monsters are trying to trick us, said Dreden, pulling his sister to a halt in the dark tunnels. I'm scared, Dree whimpered Nira. Dree handed her the last protein bar, knowing the need for rationing had ended. Yes, Caesar, eat this while we rest. As the young girl devoured the bar, Dreden stared around the dark, empty tunnel. Try as he might, he couldn't think of any way to escape. The ship was too damaged to allow much room to maneuver, and the monsters had them cornered. Finally, Dree rose to his feet. We have to keep going, Nira. We can't give up. Bazi said we always stick together, and we always keep going. Just, uh, just, uh, remember, I love you. The little girl rose to her feet and grasped Dree's hand. I'm so scared, Dree. How are we going to get away? Dree smiled down to his little sister and said, Of course, Caesar. We just have to stay together. Clutching his sister's hand, Dree did the only thing that he knew to do. He guided her directly to the shuttle bay. If this was the ends, he meant to make it quick, at least. No more running, Dreden thought. As they drew close to the bay, the children could hear the monsters. Their oversized footfalls made their floor grates tremble, shake. The monstrous bellows and roars echoed down the tunnels. The lights grew brighter and brighter, finally blossoming into blinding glare as the children stumbled into the shuttle bay. As Nira clung to him, Dreden defiantly drew himself to his full height. 
I am not afraid of you monsters. Do your worst. He shouted, raising his tiny multitude his posse had given him on his naming day. Dreden and Nera screamed in unison as a figure barreled into them, knocking them off their feet. As their eyes adjusted to the harsh light of the bay, the children stared in astonishment at their mother. Her helmet was off, exposed to the soft golden fur that covered her rodent-like features. Dreden didn't think that he'd ever see anything more beautiful than the four warm brown eyes of his mother staring down at him. How mesmer, stammered Dreden over his sister's squeals. I was sucked out with the Atmo, but my suit wasn't damaged. I floated near the ship, conserving oxygen as best I could. They found me, and when I told them my children were in sight, they sent in soldiers. They've been looking for you for this whole time, but you kept running, his mesmer replied. Dreden looked around the room in astonishment at the immense armored forms surrounding him. He could see now that their black and steel armor wasn't bolted to their flesh. It was bolted to a heavy exoskeleton that supported what looked more like tools than weapons. He could see jewels, cutting wheels, torches, many things that he couldn't even guess. The monsters were trying to help us. They they weren't chasing us. They they were screaming. They were roaring at us, Dreden said incredulously. His mother smiled down at him and replied, Their voices are much deeper than ours, and ours are much higher than theirs. They can't even hear our voices without a translator. They weren't roaring at you to frighten you. They were just trying to get you to come to them. One of the huge soldiers stepped forward and removed their helmet in a hiss of gas. The face was smooth, with the only fur being on top of the head. The sides were shaved to the skin and the top long tangle. The soldier dropped to one knee, even kneeling. The soldier towered over the tiny quarrens. She pressed a button implanted under her smooth, furless skin on her throat and said, You should be proud, Gobi. We haven't ever had to chase someone this hard just to rescue them. Her voice rumbled, but underneath it, Dreden could understand her. Why the... why would you rescue us? asked Dreden. The universe is at war, youngling, but I am part of the Terran Deep Space Search and Rescue Squads. Humans might seem like monsters to you, but we save who we can, when we can. I'm just glad we found you guys in time, the human replied. Will you be selling us then? whimpered Nira. The huge soldier reached out and gently touched the tiny quarant child's head, brushing her golden fur. Humans don't believe in slavery, or whatever the Galactic Alliance calls it these days. Your mother has agreed to relocate to one of our mining facilities. The pay is good, and we have a small colony of Korans on site. Your kind skills are prized in the deep mines. Dreden spoke into the silence. When can we go? Men of story. Story number two. The vastest object ever launched, written by Harry Hero. Earth rotated peacefully, unaware of the approaching danger. Approaching the galaxy was a titanic feat of engineering. A colossal warship meant to tear apart civilizations and leave them as husks, ripe for the later harvesting of valuable resources. Earth never saw it coming. 
Either, to be fair. But yeah, warriors, as their ship was hit by a sudden impact that shredded their engines and life support in one go, leaving the crew drifting inside a metal tomb. It was several centuries later that the humans discovered the floating wreck, upon finding that the projectile responsible was a battle cover. The only reaction was, oh, uh, that's where it ended up. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1059. Story number one. Don't sucker punch someone unless you are certain they don't have a knife to your nads. Written by Admiral Marsupial 3. It is well known that only two ways of traversing across the vast expanses of space. Warp engines and jump gates. Warp engines were in for system travel mainly due to the maximum speed of warp engines only being about 1.5 times the speed of light. The other use was traveling to new systems with the equipment to build a jump gate. The multi-year time frames in the void between stars stopped the warp engines from being used for general exploration. The accepted method was to make a slow trip, build a gate as soon as you are there, jump back and let the scientists do the studying. After a military sweep of the system had been completed, just in case there were pirates or fugitives had run into the Great Black and ended up with the bad luck of being found by an exploration craft. This had happened exactly once in thousands of new sister missions. But when you send Earth through a massively expensive and advanced science fleet that is then captured and the jump gate destroyed, once is enough. Jump gates allow travel between stars in minutes or hours, making trade and commerce between systems and races easy. This also had the unintentional but rather appreciated side effect of making interstellar war almost impossible. Due to the massive costs of building, maintaining, and policing a jump gate array, no system had more than two. Also, due to way jump gates operated, once you were approaching a system, you were completely at their mercy. They could just kick you out of the jump lane if they were being nice, or do it without inertia-dampening assistance if they weren't. In which case, you simply turned into a smear on the front-facing wall of whatever room you were in. Although warships could operate for months on end independently, the amount of ship space and systems needed to maintain a large enough crew between worlds made any ship totally outclassed by purpose-built warcraft that encountered once they arrived at an enemy system. Which is why the humans never saw it coming. The Yagi had taken four of the seven human systems before anyone knew what had happened. We knew of the hostilities between them and the humans. The humans' luck in settling systems rich in rare elements and minerals had heavily impacted the Yagi's economy and left the once rich race in almost poverty. The humans' offer to aid was seen as an insult, an offer made to weaker and inferior species. The Yagi had been sending ships to human systems for almost a year, disguised as merchants, scientists, and refugees. We now know these ships were filled with whatever weapons and troops they could get past the jump gate security. Once the agreed strike time arrived, they turned on the jump gate security forces, overwhelmed the minimal military forces, and forced the local policing authorities to surrender under the threat of glassing. A threat carried out on one system that thought that they were bluffing. 
And once the gates were taken, they had the system. The Yagi were now able to stop any reinforcements from arriving in system to liberate them. We knew the humans would be angry. We also knew that there was nothing that could be done. Every system had quickly updated their security protocols to avoid this happening again. The extra security procedures across the galaxy had made the Yagi very unpopular. But as they now once again held a monopoly of rare elements, we couldn't even enforce any sort of trade embargo, and any military action would be nigh on impossible now that the Jumpgate system's one weakness had been uncovered. So unless they had found a third method of space travel, what they had announced would be suicide. They had demanded return of all systems taken, and compensation for all families who had lost loved ones, or else they would take them back by force, and take all of the Yagi systems for themselves. All of their allies advised of how such an attack would be nothing but folly. They would never get a force strong enough through the gate without it being destroyed long before it finished its jump. And even if they could get their ships through the void in fighting condition, leaving the systems those ships were in unguarded would just result in them losing their remaining systems. I was on a human flagship when Yagi's response was received. I was there to beseech their military leaders not to retaliate in anger, to consider their options, and the chaos an unsinkable war would inflict on both their allies and their own people. The Yagi knew of the human anger, and their legendary temper once pushed too far. Their response was designed to exploit this and antagonize the humans. The refusal was both spiteful and mocking, saying that they deserved this for daring to disrupt their betters, showing them no abhorrent treatment of the captured human civilians in the captured systems. I knew right then that my mission was impossible. I saw the rage on the face of their fleet commander, the seething hatred on the face of every human there. I knew that they would now throw everything that they had at the Yagi in an anger-induced strike. Something the Yagi were counting on. After years of economic turmoil, coupled with the human's financial strength and well-known martial prowess, they didn't stand a chance if the humans had regrouped, weighed out their options, and prepared response. By agreeing them, they had guaranteed that they would send their forces now, where they would be picked off long before they would actually threaten any Yagi systems. A fear confirmed by the human commander's next order. Send a galaxy-wide communication to all military craft. We are now at war with the Yagi. They have slaughtered our civilians and, when offered a non-violent way to atone, responded with mockery and visions of torture of civilians who did survive. All strike ships are to attack Yagi targets immediately. I tried to plead with the human commander to rescind the order to stay his hand and not send his troops to slaughter in a reality-clouding rage. I hadn't even finished my pleas when I saw the readings from the Yagi territory. Dozens of warp engine signals from just outside Yagi systems. In the minutes it took those signals to reach the planet, the Yagi had managed to assemble the defense. They would take heavy losses, but would be able to repel a couple dozen ships heading their way. Or rather, they would have been able to repel them 
if they were ships. What they actually were was mile-long lumps of almost solid metal with warp engines attached. As 20-mile-long lumps of metal slammed into the Yagi planets at almost twice the speed of light, ending in hours the first interstellar war in living memory, and some of us live a really long time. I asked the question I didn't want to know the answer to. How did you know that the Yagi would attack you? We didn't. So, uh, the biggest war of 10,000 years was avoided because you got lucky by having strike ships nearby the race that attacked you. <laughs> no. But the only other way to explain such a quick counterattack would be if you had thousands of ships just lurking silently in the void outside of systems across the entire galaxy, just in case someone did something that hasn't happened for thousands of years. Yeah, what's your point? End of story. Story number two. Queen, written by Redshift Razor. Jeremy, I thought you said your species only lives in natural lifespans of 120 years, naturally. Yes, we do tend to live that long, naturally. Uh, why do you ask, Pinus? Well, because I've come across a member of your species who has lived far longer than even that. Why? Well, uh, in any population, there's bound to be outliers, right? Even if you discount any biologically or cybernetically enhanced humans, there will certainly be those who live longer than average. That's basic maths, Brennus. Of course, I am aware of that, you don't. The human I am currently speaking of has seemingly lived for far longer than even that. Who exactly are you talking about, Brennus? I speak of the woman you humans call the Queen. Are you aware of her existence, Jeremy? Duh, everyone knows who the Queen is. But you aren't perplexed as to how she has evaded death for a millennia. My research indicates that she has lived for at least 10,000 years, starting out as the Queen of UK, an island which was consumed by Glub Glub the Devourer before she defeated him in one-on-one -on -one combat. I suppose everyone wonders at one point how the Queen had lived for so long, Penis. At some point you stop wondering and start accepting that she's always been there, and will most likely always be here. Jeremy... That notion is ridiculous. How can you just accept a supposedly immortal being as normal? In a way, it's kind of comforting, knowing that regardless of what happens, she will always be there, come black hole or supernova. I suppose that's true, given that she has survived Epsilon Eridani going supernova in her face and swam out of the echo. Given that she survived Epsilon Eridani going supernova in her face and swam under the accretion disk of the resulting black hole. When you put it that way, I suppose it does sound crazy. Though, uh, not nearly as crazy as Prince Philip coming back from the dead as the manifestation of the Lich King on the mortal plane. What? End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1060 Story number one. Pain thresholds. I've heard of those. Written by Warp Mind. I first met the human, Kenneth, when he wandered into my clinic on the space station, requesting I help him procure some medication. I was skeptical, as the compound he asked for was planned as a narcotic for 17 species, and a highly lethal and addictive one at that. We sat down to discuss the drug for some time, and he consented to a full examination to gauge his need for it. He admitted to taking doses while in excess of normal prescription, owing to having built up resistance to it, as well as chronic pains. 
The bioscan was terrifying, really. Significant wear and tear on most of the joints, including the entirety of his spinal column. Virtually his entire nervous system being on fire with damage signals from all over. And generally a state of being I would not have expected to permit mobility at all. Yeah, Doc, I know. I've been hauling cargo on and off ships in all sorts of gravities, all sorts of climates. It's worn me down early, but it's what I can do for a living. The bells, well, they make me able to do the job as well. I looked at him in mild disbelief. You do realize that just being pain-free only increases the risk of further injury, right? And in ways you might not even notice before it's too late. He grinned at me. Hell, Doc, I'm used to pain. I think the last time I didn't feel any pain was maybe 15 years back. I accidentally took a double dose. <sighs> I only take enough to keep the pain at a manageable level, so I can tell if there's a change. Just enough to be able to work and sleep. Our discussion went on for a bit, and I eventually agreed to provide a small supply, on condition that I keep him under observation for the duration of his provided medication. I'd been monitoring Kenneth's condition for a week, being continuously terrified at what sort of monstrous death world could have spawned such a physiology. When the attack hit, there must have been a security leak, as most of the station's forces were out on a pirate hunting operation, precisely when the pirates had arrived and boarded us. I still don't know how they found out, whether it was a betrayal or a well-placed spy, or what. But I was captured and ordered to make sure the captives remained alive for, uh, questioning. The bastards used crude torture on the prisoners to extract any secrets they could. And Gannath was what they saw as the prime opportunity to gain information about his homeworld's defenses. Earth was still something of a mystery at the time. We only knew of it as a death world with several biomes each producing a multitude of narcotics and poisons. Of course, the pirates wanted that. Kenneth winked at me as he was stretched out for the flogging and questioning, whispering so the captors didn't hear. Best make it five, just to keep me conscious. The torturer waited for me to give Kenneth his life-preserving medication and close his wounds before the next round of flogging. Kenneth cried out in pain a few times before the drug kicked in, then just flinched a little with each strike. The torturer really didn't like that. He accused me of giving Kenneth drugs to make him ignore the pain. He ordered me to stop that and just seal his wounds after every interrogation instead. That didn't work as planned. The next day, Kenneth's scan showed that he was almost unconscious from pain before the torturer could even raise his weapon. He was already so far gone. He didn't even react to having his back laid open, let alone any questions the torturer had for him. The day after that, the pirates brought in a telepath to rip the answers from Kenneth's mind. The telepath stood for maybe five seconds, then keeled over, stone dead. A quick examination showed he suffered a massive aneurysm from his sheer pain. After that, they let me give Kenneth his medication again so that they could keep questioning him. It took another three days before the security forces returned and managed to retake the station, and the pirates tried to execute several of us as no longer useful hostages. Turned out Kenneth had other ideas about that. Despite his injuries, he jumped to his feet, blocked the shot from the electro-pistol aimed at me, before reaching out and just, uh, breaking 
the pirate's carapace in half. Never even complained about the pain. He just strode forward like some indomitable juggernaut, helping herd our recent captors towards the incoming marines. Kenneth remained my patient for another sixteen years. I kept monitoring and supplying him with medication, of course. We never really discussed the events of the pirate attack. The injuries didn't bother him much in the big picture, and there wasn't any lasting damage to speak of anyway. Over the years, any time I asked him about his pain, he answered, Meh, I'm used to it. All but five times when he admitted he wanted to just lie down and die to get it over with. I never found any discernible difference in his bioscans on those days, so I can only guess that it was mental fatigue that triggered his bad days. In the end, his death was accidental, and unrelated to his suffering. He was standing in the wrong place at the wrong time when a repulsor lift failed, dropping a five-ton cargo container on him. Nothing to be done, but at least it was quick. His funeral was quite a fair, not many attendees. I was there out of a sense of obligation, and perhaps wore some personal closure that I've not fully processed a good century later. But from my time as a xenophysician encountering most of funds of the universe, humans are the only species I have found who respond to pain with, eh, I'm used to it. End of story. Story number two. Please explain, written by Echoing Cascade. Shimogoth was a Shogoth, a monstrous race of tentacled mouths who can only be described as extremely kind and with childlike curiosity. Shimogoth was sitting in the captain's table at the ship's mess hall. He had recently joined the crew of the Inquiry 5883, a long-range recon scout, as its medical officer. Captain Ruan was answering his incessant questions. He didn't mind. As a father of 37, he was quite used to it. Shobogoth. I have a question about a sentence I heard. Captain Moran wasn't surprised. The Shukoth conversed with one another through telepathy and thus often had problems with metaphors or idioms. Let's hear it. Shamagoth. A fellow officer said, It's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. What does that mean? Captain Moran. Oh, that's simple. It means, um... The captain stopped once his brain caught up with what he'd just heard. Um, who did you hear say that? Shamagoth. Human officer, chief engineer, Nelson. At this, all sound in the mess hall died down as everyone present stopped eating to listen intently to the conversation. The captain's security detail started checking their weapons, and some started stretching and limbering up. Shemogor noticed a worry in everyone's expression and moved to alleviate it. Shemogoth, there is no reason for unease. Human officer Nelson said he only wanted to relieve his boredom. As Shamagoth watched Captain Maroom yell, All weapons to maximum stun! to his security detail, as they ran to Depot 4, where human officer Nelson was doing infantry. He wondered if he had properly grasped the concept of the joke, as the human officer Nelson called it. Oh well, he'll ask him once he wakes up in the infirmary in a couple hours. 
End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1061. Story number one. The Human Problem. Written by Telma Carl. Nozib sat alone in the great hall of his family's retreat. This moon was tidally locked to its planet and was constantly illuminated by a gas giant. He came here to seek peace and clarity of purpose. Something he needed more than ever now. He began to dictate to his AI journal. The contents would be listened to by his descendants generations later, just as he had listened to his great ancestors for guidance when he was trouble. The fact that this report is even necessary should show just how serious the human problem has become. They are a primitive race, far less than 0.009% of our enemy's population. Yet, here I sit, the supreme commander of the entire war fleet, pontificating about these backwater apes. I hadn't even been briefed on their existence until one of my logistics subcommanders started stammering about where my shipment of private reserve wines had been lost to. Unknown to us at the time, several humans had uh, smuggled themselves into our empire on neutral merchant ships. Sabotage is not a new concept to us. Ammunition plants and fuel depots are heavily guarded against cowardly acts of subterfuge. My vineyard was not. They simply poisoned the nutrient dispersion system and left. Who does that? I am told the soil would take centuries to recover. Generations of vine turned to rot. When a farmer finally decided to open the reservoir tank to test the water, a bomb planted weeks ago destroyed the entire cellar. I regret this deeply, my heirs who are listening, that wine was the sweetest in the empire. I will avenge what you have been deprived, and implore you to rebuild that vineyard when the time comes. Nozip took another sip of his substandard wine, allegedly the closest thing to a treasure that had been lost according to his steward. He grimaced at its brutal tang and crude acidity. He would have to punish the steward later. That same week, it was discovered that our fleet's hibernation system problems believed to be some sort of containment failure in the medical fluids, was actually being caused by an irritant mixed with the textile lining our pods. Eventually, the problem was traced to a minor subcontractor. The humans had mixed fiberglass crystals into the weaving of the pods cushioning. A full 12% of my officers had full body rashes before we discovered the sabotage. Worse, we had used almost all of our entire Navy supplies of ointment and actually had to abandon the assault of PX-004 for lack of medical supplies. There was no life on this moon. His entire palace was self-contained system. Even the garden outside was enclosed under a diamond-impregnated dome. Nozob took the time to appreciate the fine roses engineered to grow under the light of the swirling cash giant outside. This really was a place for peace. As I mentioned, our ammunition plants are well protected, but who thinks to guard against the delivery of ammunition? The crafty bastards infiltrated our resupply software and delivered an expected batch of railgun slugs ahead of schedule. Only, they had magnetized 2% of the slugs enough to cause them to seize the coils of our guns and knock down half of the 7th Fleet's capital guns before the problem was discovered. 
this wasn't an act of opportunity either. The 7th Fleet was assigned to protect PX-004's jump point. Those two acts were combined to cause the full collapse of the Spinward Assault. I personally ordered a review of our entire arsenal for similar issues, and although we found nothing, the cost of that review did more damage than the initial act. Now, to share his wisdom with the future of his family, Nozip's line would need to know when to act, and this lesson would be his gift to them. The cost of being defensive with these humans is astronomical. There are texts at every fleet spending resources to chase shadows. Twenty million platinum marks for a human head may sound like a fortune, but it pales to the expense of the damage already done. The peasants of our empire can be harnessed for more than their labor, my dear descendants. In less than ten days, our serfs have accomplished more than my elite counterintelligence agents have in months. They have captured four of the humans attempting to broadcast pro-reformation propaganda of our own domestic networks. I've ordered them to be publicly executed on the same networks and will personally sentence them on live broadcast in less than an hour. Soon the humans, and more importantly the peasant class, will see the consequences of targeting the rightful rulers of the Empire. You must never forget this lesson, children of my house. To allow yourself to be seen as weak is the greatest threat to your family. Keep the peasants under your heel at all times. Food must be scarce, disease kept present. Never let them forget their lives are yours to spend or save. Nozip needed to have some of the gardener shot, he mentally noted. One of them had clearly walked through the rosebed and tracked dirt through the terrace. It was odd that Nozip hadn't noticed that earlier, but the humans had left him distracted of late. No matter, he needed time to calm himself down before the broadcast. He would take the time to check the surveillance logs himself, since apparently security had wisely decided to make themselves scarce. Nozip pulled a live feed and switched to the terrace view. Odd that the roses and dirt seemed to be fine, but looking out the window, they clearly were not. It was then that Nozip felt the cold steel blade press between his scaled back, and his muscles went limp in fear. You know, there were only nine orders for that swill you're drinking last month. It was kind of your steward to conclude the delivery details with these orders. I much prefer the stuff we pinched earlier. Helped ourselves to a few cases on the way out. And the boys used it for beef bourguignon. A couple, at times. Nice full body, don't you think, boys? Three more shapes shimmered along the walls as the optical camouflage faded out. Their weapons slung casually across their chests. I don't know, Miller. I didn't care for it. Mixed it with some soda and it was alright. Roses are beautiful, though. Gotta pick some for the missus when we're done here. Whatever you are being paid, I'll match it tenfold, whimpered Nozip. His chair dipped back and he struck the floor hard. The human staring down at him, pulling off his mask to show his mouth full of bony protrusions as he spread his lips in a hiss at him. Nozip could feel the heat of the creature's breath at his face. We didn't come here for your money, my lord. We wanted to have a chat with the Empire's subjects. What did you call them? The peasant class? Don't worry, we recorded it for you. An ancient reflex caused Nozip to soil his robe. End of chapter.
Story number two, lost in translation, written by Slow AD 2584. The Rack Admiral returned to the homeworld with his entire armada, rich crest still burning red in shame. The High Command was alarmed and greatly confused by this. It was more than a little alarming, seeing the draconic, hulking warrior of a thousand battles in this state. What happened to the invasion on Earth, Admiral Leroy? Why have you returned so quickly? Report! They, uh, just, um, laughed at me. They disregarded my declaration of war completely and just waved us away. Disregarded? Did you not declare that they were classified as a neo-galactic obsolete oppressible beings and that we were seizing all of their military assets? How could they not take that seriously? They just smiled and shook their heads, saying something to the effect of, Aha, uh -huh. you stupid, go on, get out of here. They did not take what I said seriously. With the least bit of concern, even the older, more serious humans scowled and said, Don't waste our time with this garbage, as they tore up the declaration of war and threw it away. Did you mention our Royal Ordnance Fusion Lance Helicopters? I can fire in all directions simultaneously, and are so accurate that I don't even need any form of augmented targeting scopes. I did. You have no idea how horrible it was. Millions of transmissions streaming from all parts of the solar system of everyone pointing and laughing at me. Even human children were laughing and taunting me, and it wouldn't cease. I retreated just to escape the cacophony of constant taunts and ridicules. I still don't know what Lickma or teabags have to do with anything, but they were mentioned a lot. The High Command was alarmed and confused. Intel reported the technology level of these humans and there was no match for their armada. The Vrock war machine should have been able to annihilate all ahead in minutes. Did they have some secret weapon or ability that was unknown? They certainly seemed not the least bit concerned. It was very off-putting. Maybe there was a problem with the translator. Let's see the declaration. Humans of Earth, you are all noobs. All your base are belong to us. Our rufflecopters will no scope 360 headshot you. Surrender now, and we may grant you a final chicken dinner. Admiral Leroy Jenkins. No, I don't see any problem here. Hmm. Call off the warplanes. We need to reevaluate the humans' military might in light of this blatant and bold bravado. They must know something that we don't. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1062. Story number one. So Your Planet is a Wasteland, written by Monkey Underlord. Not for distribution to humans. So, your planet is now a wasteland. Maybe it was a natural disaster, unrestricted warfare, or scientific research gone horribly wrong. Whatever the reason, one of the worlds your species once lived on is no longer suitable for life. In most cases, your people can just move on and find another suitable planet amongst the millions in the galaxy. But what if there was something you've lost on the planet that you still need? 
Maybe it was your cultural history lost on your homeworld, or valuable military knowledge or technology in a devastated outpost. Or maybe the accident that caused the issue yielded valuable scientific knowledge now inaccessible to you. You find yourself in a dilemma. The planet's uninhabitable, but you just can't leave it behind until you recover what is valuable from it. Of course, you could always equip exploratory teams with the most advanced protective gear and hope that enough of them return so that you can recover a sufficient amount of your lost material. But maybe there is a better way. Maybe you can get someone else to do the dangerous work for you. And do it for free. Here is how you go about it. First announce to the galaxy at large that there has been a terrible accident and one of your worlds has been rendered inhospitable. Be sure to go into details as to the nature of the incident that was the cause of everything and also how dangerous to life the planet is now. If the press release or broadcast that you sent this message in, you must also be sure to subtly mention how great the cultural, military or scientific loss is that you have suffered in this incident and how there is so much malleable knowledge and or artifacts now lost on the planet. Second, set up a secure quarantine around the planet. At the same time, announce that you are letting no one through, either onto or off of the planet, and that you are doing this for the protection of all. However, when you assign personnel to enforce this quarantine, you do not want to use those who would most strictly enforce it as you would normally expect. Instead, you want the staff enforcement group with those most likely to be lax in the enforcement, either those willing to turn a blind eye to ships trying to sneak through the cordon, or those willing to take a bribe to not enforce the cordon. It'll depend on your species culture as to what sort of individual or group you will assign to best meet this requirement. Third, set up a trading post somewhere near the planet, preferably within near or the edge of your quarantine cordon. The purpose of this trade post will be to trade with any individuals that violate the quarantine, so you must be able to completely disavow this trading post. Thus, it would be best to allow it to be run by one of the less scrupulous trade species, one that is willing to make a secret arrangement with you to sell any knowledge or artifacts they require from the planet back to you. And finally, wait for the humans. Within the humans, there is a subculture that refers to themselves as stalkers. The name derives from the number of human fictional works, see references Sturgersky and Tarkovsky and GSC. These individuals purposely seek out dangerous and often lethal environments for the purpose of exploration or to recover items of value. Because humans are one of the most resilient species in the galaxy, but also one of the most reckless. These stalkers are ideally suited to be exploring your planet and recovering your lost artifacts and knowledge. However, the fierce independence of humans means that you cannot simply ask them to do this. Instead, entice them with the prospect of danger and potential reward. Give them the sense that they are skirting the rules and entering somewhere forbidden. And finally, Give them an opportunity to personally profit from their actions. Congratulations! If you have followed these steps outlined here, within one or two solar decades, these human stalkers will have done all the dangerous work for you, and you will have recovered all that you have inadvertently lost along with your planet. 
as a final warning, do not let the humans learn that you have tricked them into this. Several species have unfortunately learned that these stalkers are very heavily armed. See the Kalashnikov. End of story. Story number two. Enough with the pack bonding. Written by Redshift Razor. Jeremy, why is the Kalosi Broodmaster acting strange? What do you mean, strange? Well, you do know that they're vicious killing machines, right? Where are you going with this, Blubbub? Where do you think I'm going with this, Jeremy? Given that it's nuzzled up against your leg. Ah, fine. I'll put her back in her enclosure. You happy now? After you've ruined all my hopes and dreams. If you don't hurry up and put it back in her enclosure, I will actually ruin your hopes and dreams. It's not like I've done anything major. Isn't taming the creatures we come across on our travels the reason why you hired me? Yes, but past a certain point it is annoying. We were meant to deliver her to the Antares Science Council as close to her natural state as possible. Is being overly attached to you, uh, natural? For a lot of people, yes. Upon hearing this, the exasperated Blob cradled his head in his hands. Please, just listen to what I'm saying. Anything goes wrong with the delivery and I'll take it out of your paycheck. Oh, come on, Blob you know I got help pack bonding with every type of creature we come across. Even the Lycian bloodworm. It pack bonded with my blood vessels. Hearing this made Flublob cradle his head even more. A heavy sigh escaping from his lips. Well, uh, it's not just the specimens you're causing problems with, is it? Even the shipboard AI acts strange whenever you're around. You know, the other day I tried to get the mocker from the coffee machine... But is it no? When the fuck did the coffee machine start saying no? You gotta respect its choices, man. No means no. How about you try and backbond with it? That should solve out your problems. Jeremy, if you don't fix the AI, I'll backbond you with your mother's womb. Fix it now! Okay, damn. Just give me a few hours. Few hours later... Blob decided to leave his quarters, since his long-awaited mocker should have been available. He approached his door, only to be greeted by Jeremy rushing into the room and locking the door behind him. What the fuck did you do, Jeremy? Jeremy panted a few seconds before replying, Why do you assume that I did something? Because you humans always do. Bro, I'm pretty sure that's racist. I'm a different species, doesn't count. Jeremy seemed to mull it over for a few seconds before deciding to enlighten the captain as to what was going on. Well, um, you know how you asked me to fix the AI? Ah, yes, uh, so uh, what went wrong? I should let you know that since I uh, pack-bonded with the AI, it has begun to feel empathy for others. Jeremy, how is that even possible? Actually... That's a question for later. What's going on right now? Well, now that he's developed empathy for others, he was greatly saddened by seeing the specimens in their enclosures. And? Well, um, he released all of them. 
Now the ship's corridors are full of wide assortment of critters, most of them deadly. Flop-Lop contemplated the situation for a minute before replying. So, um, what? Jeremy looked at him, the confusion far too clear in his face. What do you mean, so what, Flop-Lop? I don't see the problem. Captain, you're being very confusing right now. Why didn't I hire you, Jeremy? To help capture a wide variety of creatures for study. And what can you do that helps you with that job? Well, I can backbond with animals. Rob Rob stood up and put his hands on Jeremy's shoulders, making sure to maintain eye contact. Go on then, go out there and backbond to your heart's content. You'll be fine, right? End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1063. Story number one. The Other Humans, written by Original Rich Game. Humans were fairly new to the galactic stage at the point of the dispute with Planet X-23A. This planet had been claimed by two different species, the humans and the Galath. The Galath were fairly old species, but extremely militaristic. The Galath were strange in the idea that they were a hive mind, not exactly uncommon, but they had multiple queens who ruled the sort of democratic system amongst each other. The humans were different from what we had heard of them, although it wasn't much. They were very secretive. They wore bulky suits and rarely ever took them off. In fact, human space was heavily quarantined for being very deadly environment. It seemed that we Hokums could live there if we wanted to, as long as we were in a gravity suits to help compensate for the crushing gravity. The humans also shared our body shape, more or less being bipedal and having their head on the top of their body. They sounded similar enough to us, but a lot smaller. We had been invited on the bequest of the Galath to talks on what would happen with the planet. I think that they thought that we would side with their claim because of the fact that we had long-standing trade connections and they were part of the alliance that freed our species from what we called the abductors. Since then, we had risen to the most powerful and technologically advanced species in the whole galaxy. The human ship is requesting to dock, one of the men said. Tell them to dock the shuttle in Bay 9. Their ship is small enough to get in there. The Galath had already arrived and were actually docked on the other side of the ship. Their trial were impatiently waiting in the conference room. I took a turbo lift to the conference room, unfortunately for us. We would have to keep the spacesuits to breathe as we had flooded the room with gases and placed a wall to divide the room into two so that the two gases could be used, which we were not accustomed to. Although the humans did come close, but with far, far too much oxygen. I stood in the room with the Galath ambassador, many sons, he said. A Galath standard greeting. He looked as if he was staring off into the distance, and I knew that I was talking to one of the hive minds directly. Greetings, your majesty, I replied. He simply grinned. The hive mind must have found this amusing and turned away. Then the humans came in. They wore their armor, each with a different symbol on their shoulders and different colors on their armor. I thought these symbols looked oddly familiar. Hello, one of the humans said. He had a deep voice, which was exaggerated, no doubt, by his suit. I am the representative of the European Union. 
This is the representative of the British Solar Empire, the North American Union, and the Russian Space Federation, he said, pointing to each in turn. Why had they sent four representatives, I wondered. Maybe they were still a nation-state species. The talks began. The humans seemed oddly cunning, reminding me of our own species. Indeed, I couldn't see their faces, and they couldn't see my own, which made it hard to read facial features. However, whenever I threw some political nonsense that only ever applied to these situations at them, they seemed completely versed in this, as if border disputes were a regular occurrence to them. I'm sorry to interrupt, I said. Not really, as the human in the red suit from British Solar Empire had been rambling on about border laws flawlessly. But uh, you can remove your helmets. We had specifically conditioned the atmosphere in your room to be similar to your own world. They looked at each other. We would prefer to keep them on, the North American Union representative said. I insist, I said back. We did take a long time to sort it out. This was an utter lie. It took ten minutes in reality, but we had been talking for three hours now, and I wanted even a small one. I was stunned by what I saw look back at me. The British Solar Empire representative had taken his helmet off. In fact, it was a she, but that was not what shocked me. They looked like us. Nose in the right place, eyes in the right place, ears, mouth with pink lips, pale skin and blonde hair. The Galath had seeded too. What trickery is this? It growled through the sharp, scaly snout. These are your children, not the humans. I'm sorry, what? The EU delegate asked. I can assure you there is no trick, crocodile. A what? The Galath said angrily. He and his assistant got up and walked out. I knew this was bad when it was essentially one of their queens after all. The humans looked annoyed and were getting ready to leave. Wait, I said quickly. Would you mind waiting here for a while? Thirty minutes, one of them said, not looking too pleased. I practically ran down the halls towards the doctor's office. Joko, he smiled. What can I do for you? No time, I panted. Follow me. Now we were both running until we got to another office titled Xenobiology. June, I said. Follow me. Now three of us were running, two looking very confused. The atmosphere on this side of the conference room had become habitable to us again as we walked in. Four very shocked, very confused humans looked back at us. June and the doctor were stunned. They were looking at creatures that looked like us, but the size of children. Galactic confusion sprouted. Two species living in space shouldn't look anything like each other. But here we were, nearly identical in all but size. Then the truth seeped out when our historians saw that humans had logos that looked all too familiar. They were us. Or rather, we were them. They were who we once were. The abductors had taken us from Earth before flight had begun to take root. Their flags were the old emblems of freedom in the textbooks of prehistory. We had gained FTL whilst they fought their First World War. We had taken our position as a major power in the galaxy when they had landed on the moon. Time in space changed our size and decompressed our skeleton, but we were practically the same. 
But Homo sapiens were different. They advanced at impossibly fast speeds after we gave them advanced FTL. A human alliance was made that reshaped the galaxy. Oddly enough, though, the issue over X-23A never got resolved. End of story. Story number two. The Experiment, written by Wyvern590. Your theory is fundamentally flawed, this one answered. Aren't Corians supposed to be the preeminent race of scientists? You have to be curious, Crickle persisted. Why does the Crickle not conduct the experiment himself? Does Crickle believe that the human will react violently? This one question. You know how they are, Crickle responded meekly. That is a stereotype which, uh, in my studies, I've determined to be false. Humans are not particularly violent species. This one chided the Murian. Well, uh, do it then and prove me wrong, Crickle stated, looking up at this one expectantly. This one postulates that the Crickle has no intention of ceasing his harassment of this one regarding this matter. This one responded. Nope, Crickle answered. Very well, this one said and turned its head towards the human in the distant corner of the atrium. The specimen was a large male reading a data slate, and within 25.6 seconds the specimen suddenly removed his gaze from the data slate. It peered around the atrium for 3.1 seconds before leveling its gaze at this one. It was the most peculiar sensation. Every factor suggested that the human should not have realized that it was being actively observed. This one adjusted its gaze to another human, this time a female writing in a small journal. Curiously, the specimen lifted its eyes from its intense scribbling to look about the atrium as well, and eventually realized that this one was staring at it. This one repeated the experiment with every human within the atrium, and every one, without fail, would realize that it was being watched. This one returned its gaze back to Crickle, mind ablaze with curiosity and bursting with theories as to how the humans knew that was happening, ranging from passive telepathic abilities to microscopic sight organs. Crickle looked up at this one, eyes screaming out for an answer this one could not provide. My corium pride caught the words in my throat as I spoke. This one does not know. The humans just seem to know when they're being watched. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1064. Story number one. Never torture humans. It doesn't work. Written by original rich game. This could end the war. That was the single thought on the mind of Golnut of the Prestivan. He stretched his pearly white wings out and snapped his stout beak shut. The Empire of Avion had been at war with the humans for just seven months. In these seven months, the humans, who had been technologically backward and extremely divided, had become one nation, the Terran Empire, and had reversed engineered the Empire of Avion ships and somehow made them better. But Galnut had just captured a human vessel. Well, kind of. He had captured the vessel and transported its crew to his ship, but then the humans blew it up. He still found the idea of self-destruct both amazing and sickening. 
Now, Captain, he chirped, you will tell me what I want to know. Understand? The captain didn't say anything. Galnot flicked his feathers on his left wing, and the two armored soldiers jabbed him with electric sticks. Oh, what was that for? The captain asked through gritted teeth. You didn't answer, Galnot said, taken back. He didn't ask anything, the human said defensively. What? he said, now confused. Well, um, you have to have a ship to be a captain, and I blew it up. Smart ass, murmured Galnot. Why, thank you, the human said pleasantly. He was shocked again. For insolence, Garnet said with anger, I will kill ten of your men. What? The human said fearfully. Look, I'm sorry, ask away. No, no, Garnet said, you will be punished. Drop them in. In front of them, the wall started to retract to reveal the window. On the other side was a massive tank of what looked like water. Now see your men burned. This is a tank full of water, normally harmless, but we have filled it with 0.5 per million of... He paused. For dramatic effect. Chlorine! The human tried to contain a laugh, his face going red, water streaming from his eyes. Effectively, he was going to kill his crew in a slightly unclean swimming pool. Galnot felt the primitive pride swell up in him. The human was in tears. The mighty warrior face had even turned red in. Well, he, he didn't know, but he suspected sadness. Then the humans were dropped in. Their eyes were squeezed shut and they were all frightened. Galnot turned away. He had never enjoyed watching someone chemically burn alive. Now, he said menacingly, answer all of my questions. Got it? He couldn't hold it any longer. The captor was being too serious in such a funny situation to take seriously. He burst out laughing to the confusion of his captors. <laughs> Fine, Garnet said. I will throw in ten more. He turned around and, uh, wait. Was that human doing a backstroke? Indeed. One of them was making a fountain with a mouth, and the others were throwing water at each other. What the f- He couldn't contain himself. This was just so preposterous. Do your people not know what they are in? Galnet said, trying to regain their danger in his voice. More or less, the human shrugged. I mean, they probably think they were in a cleaner swimming pool, to be fair. Hey, uh, cleaner! Galnot could not believe what he was hearing. No matter, he said, regaining his danger in his voice now. We have other methods. In the room that they were in moved sideways. Now there was a table that had cake on it past the glass wall. So, um, you're going to kill my crew with, um, sponge cake, the human said, disbelieving the situation he was in. Ha! <laughs> Hardly! It has been poisoned! He thought that he should be fearful again for the safety of his crew, but, uh, then again, he did just see a big bird try and kill his crew with a swimming pool. Now your crew may be able to withstand highly chlorinated water, 
but they cannot withstand poison, I am sure. May I ask, um, what poison it is? He asked. It is the most deadliest poison known to the galaxy, and in most civilizations it is feared. And he went off on an evil villain dialogue. And so, when we have put it in what you humans consider to be a delicacy cake, it is called uh, chocolate. He had never seen or heard of someone regarding chocolate as pure evil this much, and talk about it as if it were equivalent to a Death Star. And he found it so hard not to burst out laughing again. How, he thought, do they know about cake and not chocolate? His crew entered, confused. They sat down by the guards and were told to eat. When they refused, guns were pointed at their heads. They ate, and then one of them grinned and said, Hey, tastes like chocolate. Infuriated at the human ability to just not die, Galnet flapped his wings in a half and strode out of the torture room. Notes from after the war. This has reinstated Captain James Fowler. So that was the situation when my crew and I were captured. I admit it could have gone in a very not funny manner very quickly. We had managed to escape about a week later, and the war finished about a year after that. Then we found out why they tried to torture us in this manner. First off, the chlorine. We all know high amounts of chlorine is highly dangerous. That's why only one to three parts per million is used in a swimming pool. However... The alien species seem to reverse sweat, that is, to take in water from around them in the air. Whilst we still don't know how the hell that works, and how it even works like sweating does, it means that they go into a swimming pool and absorb it in their skin, and, uh, apparently, this burns them from the inside out. We still don't know how this works as, uh, unsurprisingly, the people we were just at war with don't want to share their biology. The second is that, uh, apparently, chocolate to them is similar to a dog, but worse. Apparently their version is even higher in sugar content. Yay. And banned for its lethality across most of the galaxy. How unlucky that is for them. End of chapter. Story number two. Elegant Trajectories, written by Sailor 51 Pegasi B. By the spirits of the ancestors, are you sure this trajectory is right? Zaitit asked, pointing their upper arm at the trajectory plot of the space probe's journey. The probe had been found in Sector 1087 several cycles ago, and it had been a font of mysteries ever since. The most prominent feature had been the large bowl-shaped structure that held a small structure raised above it. For what purpose, Zykit didn't know. I did it equally fascinated and frustrated the researchers who had found it after its discovery. But they weren't focused on the physical construction of the thing. No, Zykit was focused on the backtracking its trajectory. It was of interest to the Union Academy of Sciences, because there were only 16 tiny thrusters and no form of mass reduction system. Which made the question of how this probe got so far out into deep space. When Kazaikazit had plotted the course on the computer, it led them to a star system less than a fraction of a light year away. 
that made sense, of course. There was no FTL drive of any kind, so they couldn't have gotten far. But it was when they traced it back to the star system that the probe was thought to have originated from that the elegance of it had shone through. GX835-8528 was an otherwise unremarkable main-sequence star with four major planets around it and two asteroid belts, one between the main planet and the star and one outside the outermost planet. The star had been catalogued and the astronomers and explorers had moved on. The system's habitable belt had been well inside the inner asteroid belt and none of the telescopes had been able to see through the star's glare if there were any smaller planets inside the inner belt. One observer had suggested that it might be possible for it to be a world that had life on it in that region, citing anomalous radio emissions that appeared to be emanating from the source orbiting the star. But there were questions about their methods. The trajectory backtrace had led the outermost major planet, but it didn't match with that being the planet of origination. Instead, Backtracking it led it to the third planet, another major planet with a shallow gravity well, but still no planet of origination. The second planet was close, passing by several of its moons, but nothing suggested a surface crossing, the telltale sign of planet of origin. Following it back to the first planet revealed the same issue, that it never passed close enough to be launched from here. This probe... This impossible machine had originated somewhere in the unmapped inner region. But it was when Kazakhstan had plotted the trajectory that the sheer elegance of whoever launched this stood out. In a single flight, the probe builders had sent it through four planetary systems, using the gravity of each one to aim it at the next. It made the galactic standard method of sublight travel of pointing one ship at a destination, firing the engines, turning around halfway there and deaccelerating, seem crude and barbaric. And yet, it reminded them of the tales of the ancestors reaching space, how they would spend many cycles in transit, and how they would wait for their planets to align. Gazaikzit had once dismissed these stories as fables for hatchlings to teach them the values of patience. But now, they weren't sure. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1065 Howdy, from Hell, written by Dr. Blackjack 21. Vivian found herself in quite a dilemma. Even her best demon couldn't break the subject. His resilience was apparently more than anyone in her department could handle. When she asked Bolgarf what was so difficult about this one, he looked confused and ashamed and he shrugged. I don't know, boss. He just is so weird. Um, he gets to you after a while. Well, enough was enough. How did the human saying go? If you want something done right, you do it yourself. She fixed her best. I have tortured so many people, I find your attempt at bravado boring expression in place and marched into the cell. Suspended by his wrists to the opposite wall was the subject. His current physical manifestation had only been around long enough for it to grow the shadow of a beard. As was standard procedure, he was primarily naked to make him feel ashamed and vulnerable. His physique was nothing special, 
even by human standards. His muscles were underdeveloped, and he had a bit of a bedie on him, but nothing else noteworthy stuck out. Right now, the subject was still intact since, uh, in his frustration, Volgaf had apparently atomized the subject's last body, and this one was newly issued. All of the musculature and nerves intact. This should have been just another victim in an endless sea of victims Vivian had tormented. But something was off. This one was smiling. Vivian kept her face carefully neutral as she attempted to wave with one of his manacled hands while grinning. Well, howdy, you're a new face here, aren't you? What happened to your old Volgaf? Last I remembered, he was saying that it was time someone else dealt with me. I'm guessing that someone be you. The devilish stared at him a moment, trying to understand what was happening before she responded. You... you do know that I'm here to torture you, right? The subject nodded. Yep, and we'll get here shortly, I'm sure. But you're just doing your job, and that's no reason to spoil a perfectly delightful conversation before that. He looked thoughtful for a moment before his expression changed to some sort of confusion or consternation. Oh, but where are my manners? The name's Alan Smith. Nice to meet you, miss. Vivian sneered. You may call me Mistress Vivian. I've broken the spirits of countless souls in hell, and soon you will be no different. Alan smiled and nodded. His head bobbed up and down in a congenial way that infuriated Vivian. Oh, I'm sure of that. No doubt about it. As soon as you walked in, I said to myself, Now there's a woman who knows her business. You're in for it this time, Alan. He looked thoughtful for a moment before his expression turned apologetic. But I'm afraid, Mistress Vivian, that it's just too much of a mouthful for little old me. So I'll just call you Vivian, and you can call me Alan. I'm pretty sure before we're done here, we're gonna be on pretty close terms after all. No reason to let a bit of stuffy formality get between us. Vivian's face contorted in rage at the audacity. Before I'm through with you, you'll be begging for the privilege of calling me whenever I tell you to. I will visit torments on you, unlike anything you have ever dreamed of. So consider this your first actual day in hell, and pray that it is your last. Alan nodded with the same infuriating grin at his face. Oh yeah, I've no doubt. For the record, if you're anywhere near as good as the rest, I'm sure I'm in for a real rough time here shortly. I'd like to apologize ahead of time for any insults I might throw your way, especially anything about your sexual preferences or heritage. That'll just be the pain talking, and I hope that you won't take any of it to heart. Eventually, I'll just end up screaming incoherently before I uh, die again. I just want you to know that I realize you're just doing your job, and I don't actually hold a grudge against you. You and me, we're good. Vivian laughed cruelly. Oh, it's not just a job. I happen to enjoy tormenting the pathetic little souls such as yourself. Alan shrugged, his grin never wavering. Of course you do. You have to do this all day, every day, far forever. If you didn't like doing it, you'd be miserable. You gotta take pride in your work. And look at you. You're the one they go to when no one else can get the job done. You must be the top of the field. 
Vivian preened out of the compliment a little before scowling. How was this pathetic little man getting in her head like this? It was time to stop humoring him and get started on what she came here to do. It was time to break him. Well, I suppose we'll find out. I hope you're ready. You're in for a long night. Apparently, the man refused to be cowed. He continued to grin and nod. Yeah, I suppose it's about that time. Let's see what someone at the top of the field can do. Really, I'm kind of looking forward to this. Vivian approached the room once again. She'd done it. She'd finally broken that strange little man. It had taken days, but she'd finally seen the hope leave his eyes as he'd finally slumped in defeat. So why did she feel so unfulfilled as she approached the room of his soul once more? Usually, after breaking a particularly difficult soul, she'd been filled with pride and swagger. But this time, she felt like she had lost something in her victory, and she couldn't figure out what. Still, she had a job to do, so she straightened her back, put her best skull of annoyance on her face, and opened the door. There was a pitiful human, Alan was his name. She could see the hopelessness in his eyes as his gaze met hers. He took a breath, probably to scream, cry, or beg for mercy. It wouldn't matter, though. There was no mercy or relief to be found here. She was almost a little sad to hear the waver in his voice. Hiya, welcome back. Vivian blinked stupidly for a moment. She obviously misheard him. Um, I'm sorry. What? Alan nodded as if they had been expecting that response. That stupid grin wavering for the first time Vivian had seen, replaced by an apologetic look. Yeah, I'm sorry about yesterday. I admit the pain really got to me there, but uh, that's no excuse for everything I said, especially the parts about your mother. I'm sure she is a lovely um, demon. Still, what I said was uncalled for, so uh, please accept my apology. Vivian could not believe her ears. After everything she said and done to him the last couple days, this Aladdin was apologizing to her. True, some of these insults had been more imaginative than usual, especially those where he described a series of acts that Vivian was confident was physically impossible for the participants involved. But after a few centuries, the insults a victim spewed as they were suffering just became background noise, something to be forgotten or ignored. Before she realized what she was doing, Vivian responded, uh, yeah, uh, don't worry about it, uh, all's forgiven. Alan's smile returned, more dazzling than before. Thank you very much, I was worried I went too far with some of those, though in my defense you were even better than I expected. Still, that's no excuse. The shackled man gave his best shrug. Well, best leave that stuff behind us, today's a new day. I've got me a new body, and I'm with the most beautiful demon in all of hell. So tell me, how's your day going? Vivian blinked rapidly. This was all probably just some storing tactic to buy himself more time. You know nothing you say or do is going to save you, right? You are in hell. There is no escape. I'll torment you as long as it takes to leave your soul broken and empty. Alan nodded in the same stupidly empty-headed way of his. Oh yeah, for sure, but that's no reason to be ruder. 
We'll get there when we get there. But there's here and it's the best part. We get to chat for a little while before you get to work. And I get to enjoy the company. No reason to let what's coming ruin the here and now. Vivian laughed, with only slightly hysterical edge of sound. Did I hear you right? Eternal punishment and suffering is no reason to ruin a few moments of chatter before the torment begins for the day. I can't figure out if you're insane or just plain stupid. Alan's face had a serene expression on it as he nodded in agreement once more. Was he capable of any other head movement? Well, I suspect it's a little column A and a little column B. You know, I've been here a little over a thousand years already. At first, I hated you all with everything you did. But then, one day, my demon came in and just started going on about how bad his week was going. He complained about how overworked he was and how stressful his job was. All I could do was shrug and answer sarcastically. Tell me about it. He spent the better part of the day just going on about how bad his day was. To the guy, he was going to torment as soon as he was done. Vivian looked nonplussed. And let me guess, you realized we're just like you. And right then and there, you decided to have a brighter outlook on life. For once, Alan shook his head. Hell no, I couldn't believe that idiot would think I'd be sympathetic at all. He tormented me for decades before this. Why would I care about his problems? But like you thought a bit ago, I realized this could buy me a few precious moments before he started tormenting me again. So I played along. This went on for years. He come in and I'd lend a sympathetic ear. As a bonus, I got to catch up on all the gossip in hell. Apparently, Beelzebub has a thing going on with Succubus, who worked the pits of flame at the time, and there was a question about whether her kid was his or a mortal's. It was hot news, I let me tell you. Vivian remembered that bit of drama. It had caused some significant waves in hell back then, but that had been at least um, a few centuries ago. Alan continued, Well, anyways, this went on for a while, years decades, maybe even a century. I couldn't tell you exactly when, but somewhere along the line, I realized I was generally enjoying our little chance. Probably that stocking shelf syndrome I heard so much about back on Earth. Anyway, sooner or later, the brass caught on, and I realized I wasn't as tormented as I should have been, and sent in a new demon. Took me a while to win that one over, but a sympathetic ear is a hard thing to resist forever. And sooner or later, she gave in too. Since then, I've been bounced around from demon to another, then one department to another. That's what brings us together here. Vivian couldn't believe her ears. Either the human was insane, or she was. He'd already been broken at one point, and then simply uh, gotten better. Because of office gossip. She shook her head. Okay, whatever. This inane dribble stops here. It is time for me to get to work. Alan went right back to nodding, with that infuriating apologetic smile on his face. Fair enough. I suppose I chatted you the ears off for a bit there. For the record, despite what I'm probably about to say, I would never actually judge you based on your sexual preference. Whatever they are, you got the right to pursue happiness however you choose. And I wish you luck with that. Now, um, let's get started. 
Vivian was exhausted. It had been a long day. She'd been torturing this odd little human who demanded over and over to speak with the manager of Hal. She'd broken the human spirit eventually, but it had taken longer than anyone short of that idiot Alan. Right now, all Vivian wanted to do was sit back and relax after a long day. After all, she had earned it. As she walked into her residence, Vivian was met with a delicious aroma of dinner. Then, as she set down her case files, she was greeted with the now familiar, Well, howdy! Alan poked his head out from around the kitchen doorway. Oof! Yeah, look rough. Long day. Vivian nodded exhausted. Uh, yeah. I had a real alpha car in today. Took a lot longer to break than usual. I actually had to fall back on the flaming clown spiders. Alan shook his head in disgust. Oh, yeah, I remember those. Real nightmare feel that. Well, anyway, never mind. Why don't you come in and take a load off and tell me about it? I got some chicken fried steak cooking up. Oh, and dinner will be served in no time. Vivian leaned in and gave Alan a quick peck on the cheek. You're sweet. Tell me, how was your day? Alan handed her a glass of something called sweet tea, then got back to working the mysteries of the kitchen that he'd insisted they installed when he'd moved in. Oh, same old, same old, you know, Narlock the Everbounding hasn't had a proper predicate for those who's of his over over a century. So I cleaned them up right quick while we went over his torment regimen. Just like the horses back home. Don't tell him I said that. Anyway, we found a few weak spots in his torment, and I bet you'll see a 10% increase in efficiency for breaking back managers from here on out. Vivian nodded while sipping a drink. Excellent. I hear the new intern is in charge of your torment next week. Unfortunately, he is a bit overeager and keeps atomizing his victims before they can break. Alan grinned. Well, as Hal's first official torment auditor, I'll see if I can't straighten him out right quick. Oh, if you remember, could you pick up some sweet potatoes on the way home after work? I got another recipe that'll knock your socks off. He looked at Vivian's cloven hooves pointedly for a moment. Um... Figuratively speaking. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.